Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Great Rift Podcast. I am David. I'm Jamie. Hello Jamie, how are you mate? Hi, I'm good thanks, how are you? Good, how is the house move? It's still, it's still, <laughs> still going in boxes and stuff. <laughs> I, was, I unpacked all the important stuff first, all the, so all the models and paints have been unpacked. So Amazing. That's, that's all I need. You, have you got your hobby and podcast space set up so we can knock out loads of episodes? Yes, yeah, definitely, yeah, all good. Amazing. Um, Cool, welcome listeners. Um, If we haven't already told you this, which I'm pretty sure Jamie has in his dutifulness on social media, we're here to talk about Betrayer, um, Aaron Dempsey-Bowden's book. It feels like it's gone up a dial when you get to this book. It sounds like, looks like it's a lot of your you guys' favourite books as well, by the amount of likes and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and talking and comments we got on the, on the post, so yeah. it's just... Uh, uh, a well-looked-for episode, I feel. Yeah, and I mean, for those of you that don't notice the the sort of machinery behind how we run the Great Rift, Jamie is very much the face of talking to you guys. But I'm still connected to it, and I see a lot of uh, when this post went out, my phone didn't stop buzzing, and I'm not that engaged with social media normally, so I was quite um, like, "What has he said?" <laughs> <laughs> and there it was. It was betrayer. Jamie, we're going to do the standard uh, procedure for talking about this book. I thought if we just spend a minute or two talking about what is Betrayer, what is the sort of high-level synopsis of this book, and what does the title mean to you in terms of what does it tell you? No, that's a good question, actually. You know, I, to be honest, actually, when I'm reading it, I never really thought about the title Betrayer of the actual book, but um, yeah, I guess it has lots of different meanings, and really, really. But I guess, as you say, you talk about the background is this is the. This is the spiritual sequel as um, to some other books that are in the heresy. So you've got the first heretic, where we first introduced to, I guess, the word bearers, really. That's how we sort of know about their history and about their fall to to the chaos gods mm. and their, their quest for the truth there, which yeah. is in this book as well it's, it's, it's not the main theme of this book but you definitely see some characters from the word bearers and how no matter what the cost and how horrible it is they must they've got to tell the truth yeah for, for good or ill you know they don't care yeah. They, yeah, they know that it's not good <laughs> you know well not all of them some of them happy to revel in that evil but not all of them some of them it's 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 like reminds me of like catholics you know they just accept yes. that they they accept their misery a little bit very true, yes. Yeah. And then there's also, the se- I guess it's almost more of a direct sequel of No No Fear in terms of timeline. So that, that book deals with the the destruction of Kalth, really, and the first initial attack. And that's, that book's more from an Ultramine side, so that's, yeah. you see it from the other side, and, and how they fought back and um, against the word bearers. But that's, again, it's sort of a more direct time sequel to that. So they, literally the beginning of this book is, I think they've almost just, Left Calf and then they're rampaging across the 500 worlds. Yeah, they've um, instigated their Dark Crusade, as they call it, which is, you know, quite well established in the law from back in the day, like way, way, way before they wrote any of the books. That was kind of like what the why the Ultramarines were kept away, because they were being <laughs> burnt to a crisp, like in a sort of, um, yeah, just a Dark Crusade. It's the reverse of the Great Crusade, isn't it? They're just going there for no <laughs> other reason other than burning every planet they come across. Yeah, it's literally just a cripple, cripple. Um, the most government. powerful legion, yeah, yeah. It's to keep the most powerful legion in check. Essentially, um, they can't really come to Dad's aid if they've got. 
Because it's quite cool. The, the word bearers and the world eaters are sent there by what's his chops, Horus, and they just can every time they meet a planet, they then splinter their fleet again until they're like you know just two or three big big capital ships on their own with hundreds of splinter fleets. So while we just see the cusp of it in this, you've got to remember that it's it's everywhere. Like half of half of Ultramar's on fire because of this crusade, which is pretty cool. Yes, yeah, so we follow the Primarchs, the two Primarchs, which I guess we'll get to when we talk about the characters, but we follow their story mostly, but as you say, yeah, there's lots of smaller fleets that are running around, reaping and pillaging, I guess. Yeah, they're, they're doing nothing yeah, but burning every plant to a crisp, yeah, <laughs> and we'll get, we'll get to why when we get to the story, but it's that lovely thing that that library of all, all the authors have always talked about, it's... Uh, as as hobbyists, you know X Y Z. You 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 know that Horus will fall, uh, uh, will die to the hands of the Emperor. You know that Sanguinius will die. You know all these these well known established rats. They knew the Dark Crusade happened. They've added this texture to it, which we'll talk about later of why Lorgar has brought Angron with him. You know it's not really just to do a Dark Crusade. There's a slight level of brotherhood there. But also a level of the title in the terms betrayer, which is also quite cool. Yes, that's true. Actually, yeah, that's it. Does come actually? I think the the actual betrayer side of the story is literally almost held right to the end, which is quite quite nice. Actually, I think you yeah. read this whole book and suddenly it's like the last few chapters where you're like, "Oh shit, okay, that's where the title comes from." This yeah, is... yeah. And I, do you know? What I think just just uh, my my two cents on the term betrayer as a title. I think it's so heavily loaded. So A, you've got, everyone knows Khan as Khan the Betrayer. That's his like title through millennia. Yes. But for those that know the, the lore, he doesn't get that title until well after the heresy. It's because he burns a bunch of his armies for, for being cowards and not fighting the Emperor's children. And they, 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 he essentially breaks the Legion apart and that's where he gets his title. So out of all the characters in this, he's probably the only one that does zero betraying. <laughs> considering he is Khan the betrayer as we know him I can't think of a moment and I could be co corrected there's not a moment where he betrays anyone in this but pretty much everyone else does to some degree oh yeah I, I'd almost say it's the complete opposite like actually yeah. in this book the he, main focus of this book is when we talk about the characters more is the loyalty between Argyll, Tal and Khan yeah. and the, I guess the initial loyalty you perceive to see between Lorgar and Angron yeah but that, as you get to the end of the book, you see there is, that's maybe not quite so true. It, yeah. yeah, and it's so loaded. It's so, you know, I was thinking about it in the build-up to recording. It's so loaded to everything. Everything from uh, the uh, Lorgar to Argotal, Argotal to Erebus, you know, just all the way through um, Lorgar to, um, to Angron. Angron to his men, you know, he's not that great to them, essentially. I wouldn't say so much betrayal, but definitely no love there. Hang on to his dad, <laughs> you know the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah, you know the whole the whole series is who betrays. I guess uh, I mean even that then who betrays who in in this series? Oh no, we all focus on it's called the Horus Heresy, but this book actually I think is really good at setting out that it's not necessarily all about Horus. This yeah. is not. It's you know his heresy, but is it is it really his heresy? And and you touch on his you know motives in other books and as you get further down the series you, you get more in depth into that but um i think this book is very good at setting out matchy that maybe maybe he it isn't really horror that's behind everything and this is not the main motive and driving force 
of, of why this happens. But. Like, like an onion. There's so many layers. So many layers, this onion. Um, so I think we've covered the synopsis fairly well. You know, it's a book about a dark crusade at the sort of core of it. It's um, let's go fuck up the ultramarines and show them who's boss. And everyone knows I've got a bit of a love for ultramarines. I do love them. But it is also nice to see them getting kicked halfway round ultramar. Oh, I mean, out of those three books, that, uh, well, especially No No Fear and this book, man, if you like Ultramarines, you're, it's a tough read, yeah. that's for sure. Although I did write in my notes, later on in Luceria, they, the Ultramarines do hold their own when it's uh, oh. on, that, on that planet and they, you know, with Angron and Reboot Gilliman comes in and takes on two Primarchs and doesn't do a sweet a bead of sweat come off his forehead when he's doing it. <laughs> the guy's yeah. a legend. <laughs> Yeah, no, he is, he is pretty cool, actually. I'll give you that. Yeah. Um, right, so uh, next on our things to do, so sort of summarise Betrayer, um, let's talk about some of the characters. Um, let's start from the top of the title list, I guess. Um, let's go for Lorgar. Do you want to give a, a, a bit on Lorgar and I'll chuck in some comments? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so obviously he's the Primarch of the Word Bearers. Um, as we said before, in the first Heretic, you sort of get a first look about why he actually, and between him and his advisors of um, Erebus and uh, who's his father? Well, you know, the guy who brings him up on the planet. What's his name? Corferon. Oh, yeah. I hate that guy so much. I hate him Such both. an asshole. Yeah, I hate yeah. him both. But, um, so he's... You, you find out about why he fell in the beginning and all that, but this book is very... It's great for his character, actually. I think Aaron Dempsey of Adam really writes him well in this because up to this point, you always think he's just a weak, weak character who doesn't know. You just, you know, he's um, he praises the emperor, and then when he gets um, retributed for that, he sort of sulks and wants revenge and that. But actually, in this book, you find out it's not kind of the reason for this, and actually, he's quite a strong. Um, he's got a str- strong character. He's also actually holds his own in battle in this which i think there's a great scene where um he's trying to we're talking to it but he's trying to save angron and like a um a knight comes uh from the ultramarine side comes to like blast him to plasma and he literally like picks up a piece of concrete and lobs that at the head of it and it just falls over and then just continues digging it's like okay yeah he is a primarch yeah we kind of forget that he might he's no maybe not no russ or um lion in terms of battle prowess but he's still a fucking super soldier yeah man i mean with his mind he launches a bit of concrete at the speed of light so fast it causes an air bracket like a fucking supersonic air bang like the guy's dangerous <laughs> yeah and, and also in this book as well he's more dangerous in his schemes that he's manipulating and his links to the dark gods yeah which at first you think oh you know he's just meddling in chaos but actually in this book you really see that actually his his link and his power in, in, in that chaos warpiness is, is quite strong. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wrote in my notes, cruelty, cruelty and slipperiness. Yeah, like, Two very defining features. It's like Erebus refined. Yeah, and I think, um, especially in, I think, is it in First Heretic, you see him in the battle of Istvan V? Yeah. Yeah, and he yeah. seems quite weak in that. And he's like, he's not very. He's like, oh, he's kind of, um, he's kind of a bit sad that was happening as well. And he's not. He's a bit unsure in this book. He's definitely, he's sure on what he wants oh, to do yeah. and, and, and what's happening. Korak nearly kills him. You know, yes. he's only saved because of um, oh, 
Night Lords. Why is the name got out of my head? Kurz. Kurz saves his life and calls him a coward, and that's why he wears the Korax's um, scars on his cheek. Like he doesn't, he yeah. hasn't healed them. He's left them there as a reminder, which is very cool. Um, so yeah, I think um, he's a good character in this, and there's a lot of. Uh, I guess one of the main focuses is his interaction to the another character is the Primarch of the World Eaters, Angron. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'll do a bit on Angron if you like. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Cool. So, yeah, Angron is the opposite end of the scale to Lorgar, where Lorgar is, you know, like I said, cruelty, slipperiness, scheming. Um, there's, a, there's a quote which is like, he's the most, he, he looks the most like their father in the terms of, like, if you were to cast it into a bit of marble. Uh, he's got a face like an old coin, like, the term yeah. used, which I really like. Angron's the other end of that. He's a fallen angel, or the red angel, which they, he actually laughs at in the book. You know, he finds that term really funny, that they call him a red angel, as if it means anything to him, like he cares. But, um, you know, he's got a scarred-up face. He's a mess. He's got what's known as the butcher's nails, uh, hammered into his skull, which are like, um, um, as you learn throughout the book, they're not a pain engine. They're not there to motivate more violence. They're there to suck away everything else in your life that matters. So you only feel anything when you're performing violent acts. And I think that's the big sort of head, head turn on this. Um, pain engines and things have existed in 40k forever. The Imperium use them sometimes. You know, space, mm, yeah. space Marines have a level of that in them. You know, they're designed to take as much pain as possible and dish out maximum pain. Whereas the Butcher's Nails, they, they bleach the brain. They take everything out. And Angrons are just hyper versions, you know, they're the original version. So they've made him stupidly miserable. He is, but by this point in the story, he is so damaged. You know, he's found, I think, fairly early in terms of Prilarchs. His atrocities after atrocities under the Imperial banner have got so bad, just as the build-up to the heresy happens, that, you know, his brothers come knocking and asking questions. Um, so he's, he, he he's... He really doesn't give a fuck about anything, Angron. He really is all about loyalty to his men to some degree, you know, being the best of the best in the most blatant binary terms. You know, if I'm standing and you're on the floor, you lose. Um, he doesn't really see the world much more complex than that. He sees it very much as a war is won if there's one man standing, it's whatever side he's on wins. Which, you know, that's that's so black and white, it's almost stupid. And yeah. that comes up a lot, right? That comes up with, with the, the the Night of the Wolves, which we'll talk about later. But yeah, Angron, you know, Primarch of the World Eaters, um, who used to be the Warhounds, uh, renamed Eaters of Worlds by, I think it was Khan. Khan was the one that managed to convince Angron to calm down as he was first whipped onto the spaceship by the Emperor from Luceria, however many hundred years ago. Um, and he says, like, something along the lines of, uh, we'll, your, you know, we'll be your eater of worlds. And Khan's like, cool. All right, world eaters <laughs> it is then. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, he's pretty mental. Um, but like I said, he's got this character called Khan, if you want to talk about him, Jamie. Yes, so, yeah, so Angron, I say this book deals a lot with it, and we'll talk about his history and his past and his character. And there's actually quite a lot of um, twists that you don't actually think about Angron um, especially when he later on in 40k when he's just a demon demon primarch there's a lot of actually um subtleties to his character in here and then another character as you say that also has a lot of subtleties which is very different to their 40k persona is khan which as he said is khan the betrayer but at this point he may betraying it has been done 
and he again is a very interesting character. He's sort of he's the captain of the third. Can't remember now. The tenth, I think. Eighth. Uh, sorry, captain of the eighth. Eighth, that's it. Eighth. But he's also the equerry to Angron, because as you say, he is the captain who managed to calm the rage and um, bring bring the Primarch. Um, to, to some form of sense, so I guess he has that link, and therefore Angron uses him as maybe a kind of a bit like the Mournival to Horus, but just one not, of them. <laughs> just one of them, and it's very. It's not no one like Horus. Obviously, used their tactics and stuff, and used and politically played played with them. This is just literally just maybe a few sentences might get through to Angron from from Khan. Well, so. it it seems to be that Khan is the he was the first to get the butcher's nails. And he seems to be the only one that can control them to some degree. You know, when he's yes, when he's on the true. battlefield, yeah. when he's on the battlefield, he can he can still kind of he knows when things are a terrible idea. Running at a gun line of demolisher tanks is probably not a good idea. Um, whereas his brothers will just go fuck it and do it, but he won't. Yeah. <laughs> he'll, he'll he'll try and talk to Lotara or whoever he can reach, get hold of. Um, but still, while revving his chain axe in his hand. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, we find a lot about him and his um, to, uh, deals with more of how he's not just a mindless killer, as, as you say. He he does have tactical knowledge, like all space marines probably should do. And then he's very aware of the nails as well. He does a lot of inner monologue about them biting and him. And you've kind of, what I got from it was that actually they realise what it is and what's happening to them. And obviously, as you said, lots of them just, just fall for it and just go and just go with it. Um, he's sort of fighting it a lot more than than a lot of them, and he's kind of he's also very sympathetic to the librarians that we meet in this as well. Who, yeah. as we find out, the librarians actually cause <laughs> people of the world is with um, the nails to kind of explode or <laughs> or real. They give Angron as well like huge amounts of pain. Like he like has nosebleeds and stuff. And he's just in their presence. So the the nails are definitely affected by warpy psychic goodness. But um, Khan definitely has a slight sympathy for them. And he he's friends. Well, not friends, but he's a lot of them will just literally spit on the ground as they walk past the librarians. But he yeah, I mean Esco is part of his command squad, yeah. but he always stands in the background, like as far away from them as he can. It's yeah, very very tall. So we um yeah we find a lot about um Khan and he's an interesting character. Yeah, man. Especially after the first time we meet him, that like, he's just been impaled by a rhino after he tries to kill. Oh yeah, that's the first chapter, isn't it? I forgot about that. Yeah, the first chapter yeah. is on Istvan three, which yeah. is yeah where which Angron kind of it's his fault really, because I think doesn't Khan get speared quite early on? Yeah, it's when um Loken's running away. Loken's trying to get to fight Abaddon and Little Horus, and as he's trying to sneak out, um, Khan and his group find him, and then they have a battle. And he's just Loken's about to be like chopped up on a <laughs> like a he sons of pushes Horus him upwards, doesn't he? Yeah, he yeah, gets yeah. speared. <laughs> Very cool. Um, okay, cool. I guess um, I'll do the last uh, the, 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 of the main four characters as I see it. Anyway, um, Argotal. Uh, who, um, well known and loved from the first Heretic, um, I, he's he's definitely a very awesome, awesomely written character. He's so sympathetic and, like I talked about earlier about <laughs> Catholicism in a, in a way, he sort of embodies that um, punishment side of religious fervor, uh, the sort of acceptance that it isn't what they wanted, it isn't great, 
but it's the truth and that's all that matters. Um, and yeah, he go in in the last book. He's a captain of an assault company, which gets so decimated by everything that happened around them in terms of being turned into um, a, a demon host, essentially into the first possessed, the Galvor back. That what we find in this book is actually they've been um, reorganized um, and they become the Vakral Yal, which is like a, a Vakral Yal, uh, kind of like a collection of all of the sons that had been disowned during Istvan mm. 5 it's sort of like a adopted sons and that, that sums him up quite nicely this kind of displaced but now there's a new home because we're a brotherhood kind of thing that mentality that he has if I remember correctly they all have silver helmets as well which I just think is really evocative because they, they're you know they're crimson red um, and they've got these like really shiny silver helmets which sounds pretty rad yeah, and I think doesn't um, somewhere in the book doesn't mention that later on they've been joined by more 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 um, word bearers that have this possession thing, but they're not. He classes them as slightly weaker because they're not the ones that went into the warp that time. Yeah, um, yeah. They so, all got hurt and possessed. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, you see this crop up in other books, um, especially with the sons of Horus. They're notorious for possession as well. You know, word bearers are the sort of ones that do it as much as they like but I don't think a lot of legions really go into it until much later but the sons of Horus do they use it to bring back dead brothers a lot and you see it happen in a couple of books um, uh, they know how to create possess chaos space marines quite quickly uh, but they're much much weaker um, uh, uh, the, the Vakrial or the Galvor back um, they're like the original possessed and they're like hyper demon possession they're, they're not they're much less just having their body taken over because they're weak. It's a symbiosis, you know, it's a bit like a venom from Spider-Man. It's a complete balance together of souls, and they talk to each other. I don't think that happens with the other possessions. I think the body is just taken over completely, and that's it. Whereas yes, like, at, yeah. whereas with these, it's it's a balance. They, they look after each other in a way. They become brothers in their own right, um, even though he probably doesn't want him in there. Um, it's just the truth of it. That's that's his reality now. <laughs> you know, yeah, he yeah. accepts okay, it. Is it Raum? Raum. Yeah, Raum. Yeah, and um, uh, in in the book, you know, in First Heretic, to Lorgar and everyone that watched that ship disappear into the eye, that took all of thirty seconds, like a minute. But for them, they were there for months and months and months, like starving yeah. to death and having to eat all the crew, and, and they took, it was a long process where to become that level of Galvor back, whereas. Possession for the Sons of Horus, uh, they do it in a ritual there and then. You know, it takes them all of five minutes. So you can already see the difference of power level there. You know, it's, it wasn't as much of a commitment to create those possessed. Um, but yeah, so Argotar is beast mode. Um, there uh, are a couple other characters that I thought were really important. Um, I'm going to go sideways and to where human. Aaron Bet Dempsey Adam is well known for putting good human casts in books. Um, but Lotara Sarin is probably one of my favourite, favourite characters in any damn book. Like, she's just so cool. Yeah. She's she so cool. This spoiled, bratty, but really fucking good at her job. Like, Billy the Kid attitude about it. Um, uh, I love the fact that she seems to be one of the rare people that can talk to Angwon like he's a normal person. Considering she's a human, she's not remotely scared of him. Um... 
Uh, and I like the fact that she wears a crisp white uniform that just has this big red bloody handprint on it that she got for like from from Angron as a sign of respect for some really bloody action against the Xenos race where she just fought how the World Eaters fight. She just loves barreling the ship right into the middle of the fight, launching torpedo pods, launching gunfire and just massacring everything within arm's reach. So rad. Um, and the SSS Claw. Yeah, the Ursus core. So cool. Um, and then we've got a couple of other word bearer characters that are quite sorry, world eater characters that are quite important. We can just quickly rattle through. So we've got um Cargos, who I think is really rad. Uh he is apothecary. Um to the blood spitter. Yeah, the blood spitter. So he's the apothecary as part of Khan's eighth company. Uh you know, Captain uh what's he called? Command squads. Um, but he's also one of the best pit fighters in the Legion. Um, and he's known, as you said, as Blood Spitter because his tactic is the phlegm in people's faces while he's fighting, which is fucking rad. Um, yeah, he's just cool. He's a, he's a very nice side character throughout who has absolute loyalty to Khan, which is very cool. There's a lot of themes of brotherhood in this. Um, and that definitely comes through strong from him. Uh, we've also got Delvarus. Uh, and then um, there's one last really important character that sort of ties some threads through. And we talked about Eska already. Eska's the Psyker. He's part of like the last remaining 19, I think it is, maybe less, Livrarius within the World Eaters. They're still there. They're just about surviving. But they're not liked. They're not liked at all. You know, they cause everyone pain and suffering around them because they're just with it by being near them. Like Jamie said earlier, nosebleeds and... You know when butcher's nails were tried to put into Psyker's heads when the, on the on the fi- when they found their dad, you know it caused them to go insane with power. They couldn't control their you know firing fireballs out their eyes everywhere and exploding and killing men mid mid transport on drop pods and you know just totally unreasonable. So they don't do it. Um, so they feel very left out of their brotherhood. They're they're, they're basically war hounds. They're not really world eaters. They've sort of stayed in the shadow, which brings me on to Lork, who we're introduced to when the ship is boarded in the first sort of phase of the book. Uh, he is a contemptor dreadnought. He was the original chapter master of the Warhounds as Angron took over. So I believe he was already incarcerated um, in, in his sarcophagus when Angron's found. But the cool thing about him is he's in the reverse colours. So the Warhounds were blue with white. And then the World Eaters are white with blue accents. Yes, yeah, yeah. But he still wears the blue, and Angron makes a joke about it. He's still really well respected, but when he's woken up, it's been fucking decades he's been asleep, because for anyone that knows the lore, the older a dreadnought gets, the longer it needs to sleep before it can be activated again, because their, their brain just can't, it just struggles to survive. So he's been asleep for a really long time, and he's woken up, and the first thing he's asked is to kill Ultramarines on his ship, and he's like, why am I killing Ultramarines? So like yeah. he has no fucking concepts of what's going on, but he does it anyway, and he does it really well. Um, yeah, and he, and actually, he he never had the nails before he went into a dreadnought. So a lot of the dreadnoughts like do wake up, and they're literally they're like the battered dreadnought, like the last resort of dreadnoughts. Like all the good ones that are sort of slightly sane and in good working order, they've gone down to the the planet to fight. Yeah. So he's literally like there's like a hundred. I think there's, I can't remember how many there were. It's not. Not a huge amount, and he's like, well, there's like twenty like of them or something, falling apart, yeah. arms not quite broken, and they've and they've all had lots of them have nails in them, and that it really doesn't work very well when they've got when they're dreadnoughts with the nails in, so no. they, they're all a bit 
all a bit weird. And so he, but he doesn't. So he's kind of sane. And every time he gets woken up, as you say, in those long periods, that like he sees big changes in Angron as from when he first met him to then he's gone back to see them woken up again and he's seen him just deteriorating each time he gets woken up so that's quite yeah. a big part of part of it and he, he's not he's not really a fan of Angron but no. he obviously respects him because he is their Primarch but I think he longs for the days before him really yeah he's, so. he, he gives us the insight that we wouldn't get any other way because no one else has been around that long you know he's he's like you said he's seen him from day one he remembers the Legion from when it was on terror. He was there then. So he's seen them progress and progress and grow and grow and obviously got entombed when before Angon's found. Um, you know, he's 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 the history that we wouldn't get any other way about the Legion. And like you said, it's a really good way. He doesn't like Angon. He doesn't like where the Legion's gone. I imagine he doesn't agree with what's happened either. But yes. he kind of yeah. just accepts his lot. He has a job, so he's got to deal with it. Um, there are a couple other background characters I just want to quickly rattle through. So, spoiler alert, the Blessed Lady comes back, Sereni. Um, that's a big, big, that's a big deal. Um, yeah, but I'm not quite sure what, it doesn't really, for me, it didn't have any effect on the story whatsoever. I know we got the emotional tie to the first heretic, but I didn't really understand, I don't know if you could explain it, I don't really understand the whole point. Um, for me, for me, I think it's twofold. I think, um... Part one is allowing Erebus agency over, oh, yes, true, over Argyltal, even though everyone's telling him, don't fucking do that. You know, do not accept any gift from Erebus. I mean, that's from Lorgar. He's going to offer you something. Say no, because it's a trap. And he does it anyway. And then Khan says, look, don't do that. And he does it anyway. And it all backfires horribly. Um, but also, I think she's being lined up for something in one of the Siege of Terror books. Because uh, she's been, she got saved by um, not not John Grammaticus, the other uh, human. Yeah. What was his name? Um, uh, see the one that's in that appears in No No Fear. There's, there's one that appears in that as well, isn't there? So John is John is the uh, Damon Pritanus. Yeah, Damon. That's it. He's the American. Perpetual. He is. I think he's the one that served in Iwo Jima. In World War Two, well, that might even be John Grammaticus actually, but he is he is a human perpetual, and he's been around for millennia. Um, yeah, he he's in it, and he saves Sereni. And I think the reason Sereni's in it is this is a tee up for the next bit, and she's interesting. Again, it ties into the title Betrayer. She's been blind her whole life, brought back to life, and everything she sees around her isn't what she expected. It's almost like what she was sold when she was blind as a leader of the faith was an absolute lie, and she never knew. Um, so I think there's something around the betrayer in that as well. Is like I think that she's a betrayer to them. I think she might end up in part of the Inquisition or something. You know, she's now perpetual. She's been brought back to life. She's one of them. So could, yeah, could yeah, happen. It's true. Could yeah. happen. It could happen. It's something that maybe they've not pulled, pulled that thread yet, or maybe they'll leave it. Maybe it'll never come back. Maybe she was there just to give Erebus a reason to turn up. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there is just the Ember Wolves, the um, uh, Legio Ordax, uh, the, tit- the Warhound Titan division. So they're just all Warhounds. They're well known for carrying uh, Ursus claws on their backs, which they use to pin down big targets, which is fucking awesome later on in the book. Um, 
I think that's it, mate. Oh, uh, Vel Caridar, the uh, Mechanicum adept oh, yeah, yeah. on the ship. Uh, the bit of the comic relief in the book, actually, which is quite funny. He's got some really good lines. Um, one of them being like unauthorized or whatever it is when they're trying to investigate why Angron is the way he is. Unsanctioned, that's it. Unsanctioned. Um, yeah, he's, oh, he's yeah, a, like you have to ask the right questions. <laughs> like I can't tell you, but if you ask the right questions, I can sort of tell you. <laughs> yeah, so he's been with the Legion since before Angron, and he was part of the scientific team investigating the butcher's nails on Angron when he was knocked out by the Emperor. You know, Emperor put him in status and only he and the Emperor, maybe a few other people know what the butcher's nails are doing to him, but he's when he's asked about them by Lotara and when you know Lotara's like, I'm one of the highest ranking people on this ship and you won't tell me and he just goes, unsanctioned. So she realises <laughs> that there's pretty much only one or two people that could be above her in that ranking. Um which is pretty cool, and she works out that the Emperor's the one that made it unsanctioned, so it must be really bad. Um, yeah, so I think that's our characters covered, man. I think, um, yeah, the, 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 I think the driving characters are Khan and Arkeltile, but alongside that it is about the relationship between Lorgart and Angron, but they're two slightly different stories. It's, um, it's Lorgar trying to save Angron, or at least we think it's save, and it's uh, Argotar, it's almost like Khan trying to protect Argotar and Argotar trying to protect Khan at the same time. Yes, yeah. Which is pretty which rad is, for, for yeah, different things. Yeah, it's a very ironic ending to that as well. Yeah, so. yeah pretty mad. Um, so, as ever, we won't go into, I don't, I don't think people get much out of us telling the whole story, but we did talk about this before it started, uh, before we started recording, that the story is essentially broken down into like a three-act structure, which is common, you know, beginning, middle, end. But it's really distinct in this book, like more so than others. Sometimes it sort of happens naturally and you don't really notice in stories. You know, the beginning of the journey, the middle bit where something bad might happen and the end where you get a reprieve or a reward for that for sticking with the story. With this one, it's very much Act 1, Art of the War of Armatura. Then it's like Act 2, the journey from Armatura to another place. And in Act 3, that other place is Lyceria, where Angron was dropped as a baby and raised as a gladiator. <laughs> dropped on his head as a baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, put his skull back in, let's stick this machine in. But it's yeah. so clear-cut, there's no deviations in that plot. But so much happens in each of those chunks. So it's 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 a while, I think it's quite crazy, and I, I did the podcast to re-listen to this i've read it like four times now but i did the podcast as i did the audiobook sorry in preparation for this episode and uh you know heart you know feeling like i was really far into it and looking at the aud- audible playtime and being like wow there's only like five hours left and i was still on armature yeah which is yeah. mad <laughs> i was like wow I, you know this bit hasn't ended yet <laughs> it's really it's long front-loaded, it's very sure. front-loaded, front-loaded but, action. and the last bit is very very fast but it's all still very important. So, all right, I'll set the scene, Jamie, and you can do what you think the best bits are. How about that? So, yeah, okay. So, if I go Armatura, why they're there. So, Armatura um, is the war world. So, as Jamie mentioned before, the this is right off the back of No No Fear. Um, the, the, the world eaters and word bearers are laying waste to Ultramar on the orders of Horus to tie up the Ultramarines. Uh, what we learn is that Lorgar actually has like a secondary plan, which is, uh, he calls it like creating a song. So it's like he's, he's writing a symphony. He sees himself as a conductor of a song in the warp. 
and that song is dictated by the pain and suffering and death that they're causing to every world they come along. So he's been happy to let Angon off the leash a bit. So by that, what I mean is they'll cut, they'll stump, you know, they'll just cruise through Ultramar, and where originally you might have a tactical objective, like no, ignore those planets. We need to get to that planet because that's the one the reinforcements might come from. They're just like, yeah, sure, go for it, and just letting Angon just go and pillage a planet because it's adding to that crescendo. Um, but yeah, so they end up on Armatura, the one of the highest, uh, isn't it like the third most powerful planet in Ultramar, is that right? Yeah, I think so. So Kalf was obviously where they, the whole fleet had been um, gathered together, ready yeah. to go and attack some Xenos, so that's where they attacked. They sort of made they Horus and and um you know horus and norgar they always organize this so that the whole of ultra all the ultramarines would be at calf but yeah this is the war world so this is like full of um trainees and a lot of ultramarines there garrison there who are part of um who um look after the armies as well like the imperial army that's linked with the ultramarines and stuff so yeah it's like a if you take this out and after calf as well you've pretty much crippled the majority of the Ultramarines um, fighting force. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I forgot to mention that uh, when, they, when they're when they on their way there, um, Lorgar is in his, like, study on the... I think yeah, it's the Fidilius... Is it Fidilius Lex, his capital ship? Yeah. Yeah, that's he's in his, like, library, essentially, and he's just hanging out, and there is a perfect warp form of Magnus there, Magnus the Red from the Thousand Suns, and Norgar's like, I know you're going to join us. You might as well just commit now. And he's like, no, leave me alone. I'm just here to say hello. What are you doing? <laughs> Where are you going? What are you up to? And Norgar's like, just chatting away, just chatting about how, well, you know, I'm pretty good now. I can sort of do powers like you can. Um, and then he's like, are you going? He's like, I recognise where we're going. Are you going to Armatura? Are you mad? Like, you'd need ten times as many men to take that. It's it's literally suicide. Um and then as as they get there and the the ships start lining up to take out the sort of you know the the whatever fleet might be there to defend it um one of the uh what do they call them is it the trisagian is that one of them yes that um, is yeah so it's basically the big ships that we see from um an earlier book actually is very early book is mm. um the oh, was it escape the abyss no that's that's the um Battle for a bit. Battle for the abyss. Battle for abyss. Yeah, sorry. Skip yeah, abyss yeah, yeah. is probably another. Yeah, battle for abyss. So the, those ships that you think, those super ships that that whole book deals with, like the world bears have made the mechanic and build in secret, and they're bigger than and we, any. And we're other told ship. it's just the one, right? We're told they're yeah, the one. And yeah, and they, they, that team sacrificed themselves to destroy that ship. That one ship, and like, oh no, we built three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they they come out and just two of those ships on their own take out the entire defensive fleet around Armatura. Um, I think one's called the Trisagian and one's called the Blessed Lady, maybe? Yes, the Blessed Lady and the Trisarian. Yeah. Make I, a, I making think... a mockery of Armatura's orbital arrays, dismantling one of the best defended worlds in the Imperium with a barrage after barrage from their howling, flashing weapon decks. Yeah. You will need those at Terra, he said softly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they probably would need those. Yeah, yeah they probably be... will. Um, but Lorgar's actually in the process of rehoming himself on the I want to say the Trisagian I think that's his future flagship and he's actually in the process of handing over the Lex to Argletal which is a pretty big honour 
You know, the yeah, the Fidelius and Lex. Erebus. You'd think it'd be to Ere- I know Erebus has got his own ship, but or Destiny's um, Hand. Yeah. That's a great name for a ship, by the way. Erebus is capital. The uh, uh, Destiny's Hand. Destiny's Such Hand, a good yeah. name. Yeah. So arrogant. <laughs> so <laughs> arrogant. Um, Fits in perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Well, he likes Argotar the most. I think he's come to realise that he, he. I think he even says that. He says, like, he, he represents my heart. He's the most like me. Um, well, he knows that Erebus and Corferon are just schemers that are in this for their own end for different reasons. Um, they don't really care about Lorgar or the or the goal. Um, so yeah, they go. They're 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 in Armatura and they're really there to just kill and maim and cripple. There's no other objective. It's just wreck that planet. Um, and a lot happens on there. Um, I'm trying to think of what my favorite. So they all fly down to the planet, and you know we've had this big build up. It's quite a few chapters in before it happens, but. We get to see some lovely scenes, and there's a really nice reminiscent bit of, um, if you remember, Jamie, the opening trilogy of the book, when you see the Mournival, uh, and Loken takes a knee and, and does his Oath of Moment with uh, oh, yes, with, yeah. with Abaddon, or Abaddon, sorry, and, and the guys, you know, they put the, the seal on him, and there's this moment of purity and purpose, and, you know, it's very goosebumps, it's, it's like really awesome and cool. It's the total opposite <laughs> on on the Conqueror, which is where that, so the Conqueror is Angron's flagship. That's what Argotar has been travelling in for the whole time because he's hanging out with his best friend. Essentially, it is his best friend. You know, Khan. They are they are battle brothers. They they really get on. So it's uh, the Khan's eighth company and uh, Argotar's. Uh, what they call them? There was a name. We came up. We, we saw it a minute ago. The Vakriyal. Yeah, the Vakriyal. So they're all getting prepped on the on the shit on on the deck, you know, getting into their drop pods and their their uh, into their thunderhawks and stormbirds. And there's just so much going on in that scene. <laughs> you know, you can see that the psychers are getting spat at and told to fuck off essentially because they're making all of their brothers twitch. You've got world eaters standing around like they're outside a pub having a cigarette, all laughing at everything. <laughs> you know, all just like play fighting and you know just being idiots. And then you've got all of the world word eaters like kneeling and praying, and then Angron just comes marching through and just starts having a go at Argotal for no reason. And I just found it so funny to read. It's just so stupid. He, he gives he he says something like, "Where's your mistress, whore?" Oh yeah, she's dead. Like, <laughs> like he's there to just he wants to fight him because he enjoys fighting him. There's so much going on there. It's brilliant. But yeah, but it's part of Angron actually that a lot of them say, "Oh, let's." Like this is one of the times I've actually seen some humour in him and stuff. So uh, they're all quite—they all find it quite amusing. Yeah, he's in good humours because they're about to go and pillage one of the most dangerous planets in Ultramar. So I'm guessing he's just revelling in it, really. But it just says yeah. a lot. That whole scene says so much about both the chapters. You know, the word, the word, the word bearers take everything so seriously and so solemn. They're all sitting there in silence, praying, and then the world eaters are just pissing about, getting ready. Um, but the, uh, yeah, Angon and Argotar have this cool fight, or you know, pissing match. And essentially, Argotar doesn't take it. He's um, you know he doesn't really respect Angon in any way, does he? And there's a lot of um, just go fuck yourself, essentially, Angon. We really don't care what you've got to say. Just fuck yeah. off. Yeah, <laughs> we like, couldn't care. And Argotar like kind of he almost feels pity for um, the world eaters. That that's their primarch. 
Yeah. Like, they're like, your Primark should be what you look up to, like, what you inspire to be. And yours is just literally, like, Garbage. does not give a shit about you. Yeah. Just wants to kill. He And as we find out, Angron kind of wants to be dead. <laughs> yeah. Like, the whole point of this book is that he should have died on Lyceria and he's not really happy with his life. He's kind of, it's kind of really sad, actually. It's like, a really like, sad story. I mean, he, yeah. he basically says that later on, doesn't he? Like, I should have died. I died. <laughs> Once the emperor made me his puppet, I just agreed to do the job because I didn't want to think about it. Um, yeah. It's really, really melancholic and really sad, really. Um, but Ar- Ar- Argotal communicates with Khan by thought, and it, Khan hates it. It makes his um, paint. It makes his uh, nails tick, and he's always like, "Get out of yeah. my head." But he he basically just says something. Like, what is the line? It's really, really moving. It's like. Um, he doesn't really like you and they're like yeah but we don't really like him either essentially but what else can we do he's our dad um, yeah, yeah. there's this real acceptance of just sorrow across the whole legion and they get over it by hammering butcher's nails into their head it's like abuse essentially they beat themselves up loads because they can and it makes them feel something so it's quite tragic it's quite a tragic legion um a lot of depth there um, but yeah, uh, it happens quite quick, doesn't it? They smash through and they land on the planet, and it's um, one of my favourite lines in the book is Khan. So we don't see the landing, do we, on Armature, right? It kind of just happens. Suddenly, yes, yeah, suddenly Khan's just in running. The middle of it. Yeah. yeah, Khan's just running through the city streets, and I think they've. I think it's done in a way where it's almost like he's just sort of shaking himself out of the butcher's nails, like he's almost like, hang on, where the fuck am I? And he gets on top of a damaged rhino. And boosts his signal. And there's this really cool bit about how he said that it's funny that humanity's gone full circle. How it went from, you know, knives and flint rock to to gunpowder, uh, you know, c- uh, cavalry charges, and then into tanks and bombs. And now we've gone full circle. And it's about killing up close because that's the only way to make sure everything's dead. Um, and he said the only, you know, the one thing that the the I think he says like poxy remembrances never talk about is the dust. He said yeah, if you yeah. if you've got ten people fighting each other, they'll kick up enough dust where you can't see. Multiply that a million in a city, and it's it's just a smog cloud around a city. You don't see a thing. And he said that no one ever talks about that. But I found that really evocative because that makes absolute sense. Because when when you suddenly realise that um, Lotara looking down at the planet notices that the the streets are collapsing in an ordered manner. She realises that the, the Ultramarines are boxing the World Eaters and Word Bearers in to purposely drop tower blocks on them. Yeah, like they're giving up ground and they think, and using the, that, the, um, the World Eaters like rushing forward, they're using that to, trying to use that to their advantage by trying to get their disobedience and then, yeah, box them into a, a, a killing zone, I guess. Yeah. yeah, and dropping buildings and, yeah, like you said, dropping buildings on them and then having them in a space that they can just smash with really powerful weapons. And it's working. You know, the world, they, they knew this would be a hard planet to take, but the world eaters aren't making it easy for themselves. And the word bearers aren't either because they're being really slow. Um, what is it they're doing again? I don't know, praying probably. <laughs> I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're 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 like looting the cadavers, aren't they? They're like hammering, yeah, yeah, they're hammering like... ultramarines onto their tanks and doing rituals. And Khan's like, "Get back in the fucking fight, man! What are you doing?" Yeah, <laughs> like they take, they take slaves, they take prisoners, they take yeah, they do. They're doing all that. Yeah, all that. they're like, "Where's our where's our backup? Why are we, why are we why is it only world eaters here? Where the fuck are the word bearers?" And the word bearers are like, "Yeah, hammering an ultramarine to the front of a land raider." And it's like he's like you. Can't, we kind of need fire support. What are you doing? 
Yeah. Um, I like how they get shirty with him, dude. I like how they're like, you're not our captain. Go fuck yourself. And they turn <laughs> back round. And then it's like, no, get back in the fight. And um, uh, oh, Skein, the leader of the Destroyer squad, one with the vocalised box on his throat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just lands around them with all of his rad grenades. Like, is there a problem? <laughs> like, I will melt you with my nuclear grenades if you want. Yeah, very cool. Um, so while that's going on, we've got Legio Ordax, like, pillaging through Armatura. Like, yeah. just the Warhounds just smashing everything to oblivion. And um, we find out that they were... Originally with the Dark Angels, so they've got lots of um, lots of honours from working with the Dark Angels and stuff. So that's quite cool. Quite yeah, background. I thought that was a really nice bit of insight actually. That yeah, that they made their name with the Dark Angels, and then eventually they got seconded by Horus. So it can't have been that long ago to the to the um, to the uh, World Eaters. And as soon as the heresy started, all the banners that the Dark Angels still had in their ships got ripped down and set on fire because they'd like dishonoured the Dark Angels essentially I think that's really cool yeah um, yeah so while that's going on like you mentioned earlier Delvarus was supposed to his role his his honour is to stay on the ship and protect it but obviously the whole fleet had been battered so Delvarus probably took a bit of a well fleet's gone I'll go but it's the Ultramarines man Ultramarines are smart they turned one ship off and left it in the debris field around the planet so there's one ship that Lotara thinks is trying to escape. So she spots it, and being hot-headed like the rest of her legion, she's like, I want that ship. Get it. And she goes after it, before realising that it's coming at her for a broadside, and she realises it's not a broadside, because they know it'll kill them. They're sacrificing their ship to fire a chapter's worth of Ultramarines onto the Conqueror. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah. the worst thing that could happen to the Conqueror because it could take a beating from another ship and be fine. It's a, it's one of, it's the highest. I think they're called Emperor class. That's yes. like that. That's the capital ship for all the Primarchs. You know, the all you know, Horus has one and blah blah. blah. Um, but hundred Space Marines getting on a ship that size can destroy it. That's a lot of Space Marines to put on one ship. They could easily go and kill it. And she goes, she calls up. She, you know, she does the hey Delvarus, get to work and. They find out that he's not on the ship. So like you said, they, she has to wake up Lork. And we don't really see much apart from when the characters come back to the ship later. And there's like just dead people everywhere. Like a third of the ship's crew have been killed by ultramarines. Half the weaponry's fucked. The board, the deck gets absolutely obliterated. But yeah, yeah. Lork, yeah. Lork and his dreadnoughts just about saved the day. Just about. Yeah, I think Literally, like, there's only a few dreadnoughts left, and it's like just against one, maybe a small company of ultramarines, and he literally just runs up one of them at the end, just like, ah, yeah, I, dreadnought the, running across the bridge of a ship. There's, there's an awesome scene, dude, where uh, Lotar is like hiding, and she's like got blood all over her. One of her crew members has like lost his arm, and he's trying to drag her away. Um, and yeah, I think Lork might be one of like two or three left. And there's like a handful of Ultramarines, one of them which does have a melter gun, which is incredibly lethal to a Dreadnought. Um, and the wounded and semi-dead Ultramarines are using their own bodies as a moving wall to protect their brothers. So they're like, yeah. the Ultramarines are like high up firing and one of the brothers is crawling over another dead Ultramarine so that he can give his brother more shielding. I mean, that is loyalty. That is Ultramarines being badass. 
and they do nearly cripple the conqueror you know she realizes that they'd have to be docked for a year to fix all the problems um, yeah i mean that's why they kept having come in and out of the warp on the way to icea at the end is because it, it really fucked it up yeah they they, they they knew they'd all die the ultramarines obviously knew they were probably not going to survive the journey they had one mission just damage the conqueror as much as possible and they succeeded their mission was a success as far as i'm concerned because it fucked that ship permanently yeah, I don't think it ever recovered. <laughs> and, and as we find, it gives time for Gulliman to, in the end, have some sort of get his sort of ramshackle fleet together to, to 100% meet man. them. They, they would have got to Lyceria much, much earlier. I never really thought about that. They dropped out of the warp so much in that journey. Because do you remember every time they did, that would be where they'd trade ships, you know, people send messages backwards and forwards yeah, or yeah, fly yeah. from one to the other before they flew away. So they must have, they must have wasted weeks. Um, so anyway, back to Armatura. So that's all happening in while the the ground war's happening. Um, Lorgar uh, sees something insane. So we mentioned the the uh, cities being systematically destroyed. Angron being Angron runs right into it <laughs> and yeah. essentially buries himself under blocks, tower blocks, and yeah. is going to die. Um, and the librarians that we talked about earlier, um, they kind of save his life, right? Yeah, so that's one of my favourite bits where he's sort of he's buried alive and he's just he's got his two axes in his in his hands and he's like, I'm just gonna dig and he re- he doesn't realise he's digging further into the ground. Like he can't see anything. He's coming so he's literally dragging himself across rocks and stuff, but he's going further and further into the ground. So the librarians have this I can't remember what they do what they call it, but they have they all the get communion. together and they communion. Communion, yeah, and it makes them it makes them very vulnerable to being attacked because obviously they're all they have to have their whole, um, uh, all their you know, just their whole attention on doing this. But they get together and then they um, sort of communicate to him, and he's sort of he's taken aback by it and saying like, "No, you need to go this way. <laughs> You're going further. You need to get up." So he's like totally wrecked. His blades have got no teeth left. Like so he's literally just taken all the chain axes have lost all their teeth. So he's just, but they there yeah, they sort of save him. They um. And the meanwhile, Lorca's gone down, and he's seen the same thing, and he's sort of digging from the top to to try and dig him out. And this is where we said we saw the bit where he literally there's um a knight, and I think one night he literally just takes out by as you say lobbing a piece of concrete at the, at the head, and it literally tips over. It's like a palace. But another one literally um, catches him, and they walk up to the edge of the the crater and just fire a full. Um, like they got like only a few rounds left, and it's quite, it's quite good because you see it from their perspective, and they're like, "Oh my god, look!" And they're like, like fire, fire the plasma gun. So they fire one plasma round, and they think, "Oh, we've killed him!" And they look down, and you just see him completely like burnt to a crisp, but he's still alive. And they're like, "Shit, fire <laughs> again, fire again!" <laughs> yeah, and they, I don't, and they don't get it off because um, uh, they get literally attacked by a nurse's claw from the other, from our from the world eaters. Um, doesn't it? Um, doesn't it try to stamp on him though? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they think. Do they miss with the second round? So they try. And yeah, like, they blow their arm off. The... I think. Yeah. I think they, what's it called? A plasma destructor. That's like the yeah. yeah it's the big fat chunky plasma gun. Oh, that's what, yeah, that's right. And then so they literally and then, but at that point, Angron's he's Angron's out, and he um, stops the foot, and he's like literally holding up a knight. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like. Push down, push down. And all the like, world eaters are cheering, like, and gone, and gone. Yeah. <laughs> and like, the, like the, the, the motors can't take anymore. Literally, they kind of, and it's like, he's lifting the foot of me, he's like looking around at um, Lord, he's like, get the 
fuck out of here. Yeah, he's like, if you wouldn't mind moving, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. quite <laughs> Like, it's, it's crazy. Like you said, like, they, they down that Titan and it gets, like, pillaged by all the world eaters that clamber all over it and that's yeah. gone. But it's, it's, it's the cool, like, Angron doesn't really care. <laughs> he's just like, I need a weapon. I want to go fight. And then the world eaters are just happy to see that. But then the word bearers are like really reverent over Lorgar for what he did as well. And my my favorite thing is uh, Angron doesn't say thanks. He just sort of no, like yeah. fucks him off. He's like, "Where's the weapon? I need to leave." Lorgar goes off on his ship. Doesn't he get picked up by like a thunderhawk, and he's already yeah. healing himself with the warp. And doesn't like Khan come up to him and go like, "Angron, sir, that's like really beneath you." He just saved your yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he sacrificed himself basically to save you. Yeah, yeah he's like, that's, it's, not, that's... It's, not, it's not. It's not how like you should honor your brother. It's not how we should honor each other. Like, yeah, but it's weird, isn't it? it? It's weird. This character Khan, well known for a very long time for being this hyper violent, brain bleached maniac. It's like the absolute voice of reason in this book. He's such a normal dude. It's really bizarre, <laughs> which makes it all the sadder, I guess. Um, yeah, but yeah. It's such an iconic scene that I just I love it. Like this ankle just stops moving on this Titan, and then it's almost like Superman holding up that car from issue one. <laughs> yeah. It's like dosh, got it. <laughs> it's very cool. Um. So yeah, that's a pretty big scene. Um. And then they, they yeah, there's not much. I mean, there's a lot that happens, but it's too much and not enough time to record. But they do eventually take Armature to significant loss. They do lose a lot, but they they beat the odds and they win. Um, and then they, uh, she's woken up. Yeah, so Lork's awake, and then that sort of the post Armatura battle, and the sort of recuperation around the planet, are deciding what they're doing next. Is a big chunk of the book before they go, and a lot happens yeah. in the a lot happens in this mid scene. You've got this amazing Lotara scene where um, Delvaris gets back on the ship, and he's like bravado walking through the deck. And just gets a las bolt ping off of his helmet, <laughs> yeah. and all of his men turn around and open fire in the direction. And a kind shield from Eskar stops it, and they're coming over like, "Get out of my way!" Her head's mine. I don't care who she is. And just slowly but surely, the, the, that his command squad and Delvars look around, and there's like a hundred world eaters just standing there going, "You're right, Captain." To and not to him, yeah, to yeah, Otara. Yeah. <laughs> like, is there a problem? They all, they all know that he's. Dishonored, dishonored his role. Like it's, it's not uh, his job was to protect the the ship, and also because um, they all know that Khan and her are like best buddies. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess we should just talk while we're talking about Otara that, that this happens during the journey is um, how Khan deftly manages the punishment of disobeying his orders, and it shows how different they are as a legion. You know, so firstly, Lotara banishes him to banishes Delvaris to his quarters until he's told he can leave. So she treats him like a child. Like you know Which Angle loves. He thinks that's hilarious. Yeah, he <laughs> finds it re- as soon as she tells him he does on the audiobook he's got a really funny laugh. He's like <laughs> It's really, really good. Um he finds it really funny that he got sent to his quarters. But you know, a couple of chapters later while we're still in this sort of mid post journey from Armatura, um he's let back out and it starts with Esker and the Librarius watching the brothers and talking uh, in the fighting pit and talking about how much they miss it and how much they miss that brotherhood. And they, but then they talk about their brotherhood as librarians, and then they're watching Delvaris get 
his first time out since being locked away. And the first brother he fights just goes, is it Sanguinus Extremus? Sanguinus Extremus, I think they call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Which is, um, no, no, that's the, that's the word. Is that to third blood? Oh, no, it's third uh, blood. And then... Yeah, no, so the one you're only talking about is to death. But yeah, they usually say first blood, third blood, or death. Like no, it's always levels. the third blood, isn't it? So they're doing third blood all the way through. And I, there's a number of duels you're allowed to win before you have to bow out, otherwise you show dishonour. It's like a gladiator's rule, pit rule that they've had for for their whole yeah, time. Yeah, it's just becoming like vainglorious. Yeah, point. so I, I can't remember the number, but let's say it's like six as a number just pick out of the thin air. He does his amount, he does his six fights, and he wins all of them to third blood, getting prog- even for a space marine, getting progressively more and more tired. You know, he's having to burn through the lactic acid and rely on the, the nails. And he goes through all the best fighters, like, you know, that are around. And then the, the, the penny drops when he's like, I've done my six, let me go, drops his weapon, and all of, all of the world is just sort of cross arms and don't let him out. Yeah. And they like push him back into the middle of the circle. And then and another one comes out and he just fights over and over and he fights so much. Uh, it must have been like 20, 30 men. And then the blood spitter comes out and takes a hit, hits him back and he starts actually hurting him. And he he wins, doesn't he? He he, he knocks his weapons. He uses like a star, a moon and star, I think they're called, like a ball on a chain. And yes, sca- yeah, yeah. Yeah, Skane's using a chainsaw. And he, he wins and he, uh, he says to him like... <clears throat> You know, you dishonoured the Legion. We, you know, we don't have anything other than brotherhood. When you let us down on stuff like that, you're now no longer worth anything to the Legion. So it shows that through all the bullshit and all of the uh, butcher's nails nonsense that ruins them in battle, they still all rely on each other massively. It's quite nice, if you know what I mean. It's quite a weird thing to notice. Yeah. They take that brotherhood really seriously. And if you're a weak link in that brotherhood, you're out. And he does this really cool thing where he just bares his chest and he's like, I've dishonoured you all. If anyone doesn't trust me ever again, put a sword through my heart right now. I'm done. I don't want to be part of the Legion. You know, I've dishonoured you. Kill me. And they let him in and they, they accept that apology. And it's cool when you see him later on. He's almost like a soppy puppy around Lotara. <laughs> yeah. Like he's by her side, almost like wagging his tail. Like it's, it's really, yeah, very nice writing. Yeah, it says like, um, We've all broken positions in our time, said Cargos. You're one of the best Alvarez. Remember that. Remind us that, but why we spent so many years thinking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, he's like... You disappointed us, but you can, yeah, yeah, you can yeah. earn that back. <laughs> I, yeah. also, I also like the history of those tips where he talks about um, Sigismund and that he would like he was so badass in it and like never got defeated. But the one the one bit is when Khan and Argotel always fight together and they're really shit. They've never won a battle because... And you find out it's because there's no level of threat in it they don't it's not it's kind of it's just play to them so they don't Khan and Argotar don't care but yeah. when it when it's like battle and it means everything is when they're impossible to beat so it's kind of like I thought that was quite nice where like you'd think oh Khan's going to be great at this it's like no he's utter shit at these pit battles yeah. like he loses every time and he doesn't care like he laughs he thinks it's yeah, he just. He, I thought that was quite cool. Yeah, man. <laughs> I, I I loved that. I completely agree. Yeah, I, I'm trying to work out what the right word is, but it's de- yeah, it shows that to them it's while well, it's fun, I guess you know, brotherhood. At the end of the day, they they rely on that keen edge when it's life and death. And, yeah, they don't sink and up they and always they win. Unless, yeah, they yeah, always exactly, win. They yeah. they don't lose those fights. <laughs> so yeah, it's very very well done. Um, what else happens in this journey? There's a couple other bits and pieces. I think um, there's an amazing chapter 
um, involving uh, Lorgar, Khan, um, er- uh, Argotal, and Angron talking yeah. about where to go next. So they took this side on Lyceria. And then somehow they get onto the topic of magic. <laughs> and he's like, stop calling it magic, Angron. That's really <laughs> insulting. And he says one word and it blows half the library up. And he teaches them that, you know, that, you know, it's not magic. I'm just adapting the warp to my needs. Which yeah, is how I've managed right, to yeah. heal myself so easily. You know, it's just a skill. Um, and uh, what else is it? And then they talk about the Night of the Wolves, which is really important to the psyche of the World Eaters. Like, the, the, the fact, the way they see the Night of the Wolves playing out and the way it had actually played out are totally a difference with each, with each other. Yeah, and um, yeah, definitely. And it it talks about um, how Russ sees his because you think about them, Angron and Russ are very similar, but I think Angron like takes a mick out of him, like they're just like puppies, like they're you know when you know he calls them the uh, the, the the Emperor's executioners, but we're like the people he'd send when he wants something obliterated. Like, yeah. It's not, yeah. But, um, yeah. But the, night, um, the if, night of the wolves is an interesting one, isn't it? Because yeah, yeah. It, it pits two ideologies against each other. Essentially, like you said, it's a legion that thinks it's there to tell people off, and it's a, against another legion that are there to destroy everything. <laughs> you know, the emperor wants a planet eradicated. Just send the world eaters. Yeah, yeah. So executioners and murders for hapless prey, Russ. What you've committed to here, brothers, a fair fight, and like they. Like there's a lot of posturing and stuff, but basically he's saying Angron is he he's kind of just, he's it's almost heresy at this point as well because he's saying I don't like the emperor like what the past he's done to me and I don't I just see like you say like it's enlightening planets but I just see him for slavery which mm-hmm. which Angron has a massive dislike from from his past though he was a slave he was one of the, you know one of the few prime actually there's a great bit where Lorgar they you know back and forth between Angron and like. Lorgo says to him, like, well, you know, Angron's saying, oh, Lorgo, you're just weak, you're not really good in battle. And, like, Lorgo said, well, I conquered my planet, did you? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, shit. Yeah. Well, the only legion whose uh, sire didn't is, yeah, exactly. is the world he is. That must be quite shameful. Yeah, uh, so, but there's a lot of posturing between that and, like, um, that's where Angron's a lot of hatred. This is why he turns from the Empress, because he doesn't see it as enlightening humankind. He just sees it as basically enforced slavery for the Empress' own, own purposes. And he he dislikes that, but he goes along with it because what else is he going to do, basically? Yeah, he's a, he's a prime libertarian, isn't he, Angron? Just every man for yeah. himself. <laughs> he's a <the> master capitalist. <laughs> Just <laughs> the survival of the fittest, essentially, is all that matters to him. Like we said earlier, you know, he believes a war is won if you're the last man standing. Um, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, doesn't matter the cost. But the War of the Wolf, uh, sorry, the Night of the Wolf is a really interesting one because um, from Angron's perspective, it was exactly that. Uh, he won because, uh, as far as we're aware, the emperor didn't send um, Russ and the wolves to chastise Angron and the World Eaters. All that happened is they turn up at a planet the World Eaters have just obliterated, and they turn up, drop half their legion there, and just go, "Angron, what the fuck are you doing?" And he's like, "Does Dad know you're here, Russ? Does Dad know you're here? Do you actually have legality to be here, or are you just posturing again?" And he's like, "I'm here to teach you a lesson." And what I really like is no one knows who shot first. They're like squaring off as an army, and like it says, like I think it, it might have been Khan who says, like you know, the wolf. We we think the wolves shot first. They think we shot first. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. 
um, we were going to fight. But I didn't realise until I reread it, this wasn't like a punch em up. This was an actual fight. You know, yeah, dudes, yeah, dudes, di- dudes died on both sides, and this is ages yeah. before the heresy. But it's just one of those things that's not talked about. Um, and I like when Angron sniggers and says, "Like some of my captains are still wearing um, wolf pelts now." Yeah, <laughs> like they keep they carry some of their totems. Yeah, it's very funny. But the, but the wolves did the same. Like you, you talked to, like there's lots of um, space wolves. I guess that's one. But there's lots of space wolves that have trophies of 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 from them. And I think because well, Angron sees um, Russ stops and he says, "This is enough." And he sees that as cowardice, and that's how he won. But you could probably see it from Russ's side that he's like. Right, this is just pointless. This is my. I'm. I'm going to walk away. Possibly walk away from this battle. We don't know. We don't know what happened. But I see. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I've, goes, I've had enough. This is pointless. My men dying during this. I'm just going to. I'm going to stop it here, and 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 walk away. But I'm going to see that as a victory. But actually, yeah. is it victory? Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the other the other important thing is, and it, it, Lorgar talks about it, yeah, and actually tells arrogant uh, Angron that he's the most idiotic, arrogant man ever, is that. The Russ to any other tactician, Russ won, because um, at, the, at the point Russ was trying to make was Angron didn't have an army; he had warriors. That's what Angron wants. He wants an army of warriors. He wants each one to be individually the best fighter there is. But the Russ wanted him to prove that you can't build a empire on dust you know you need a civilization that survives after it that learns and thrives and, and develops and you can't do that when you have an army of warriors you need an army of, of strategic values you know let's not massacre their entire city because we're gonna have to rebuild it you know let's try and just placate them and, and pacify them in, in another way which Angron would never do he would just butcher a whole planet and be done with it um and the fact that russ fights with Angron to the point where the wolves so smartly surround the fight yeah, that yeah. none of the world eaters can get in, and Russ is on the floor crawling through the mud with a broken weapon, Angron's boot on his chest, laughing, saying "I win," and then it cuts back to the conversation with Lorgar and Angron uh, and Angron and Lorgar's like, "Do you not see that you lost?" He's like, yeah, "How did Russ I lose?" Russ had you where he wanted you. Yeah. technically. even yeah. though he's on the floor, you're sur- any movement, and you just been would have been shot to yeah, pieces. Yeah, the second you raised your axe, you would have killed him. Sure, you'd been quick enough to take his head off. But then you'd be dead. <laughs> you'd be absolutely dead. And Russ would have won. And, you know, he, the point that uh, Russ was trying to make that Lorgar sees as clear as day, and I kind of do as a reader as well, is that was the Russ's point. Russ's point was you're not an army, you're not a commander, you need to learn to be better at that. Um, and I think that's really cool. It's really well done. Um, but, you know, Angron will never know, learn that lesson. He doesn't care. <laughs> He's got no desire to learn that lesson. Yeah. He, just, he is a gladiator at heart. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think that's a really important insight in the book, and I think you know, to, even to Khan, Khan sees it as a world eater. Uh, well, yeah, world eater's victory doesn't see it as an, a learning of any kind. Um, but yeah, that's a really important. But La- Lahore sees it as a he he sees it for what it is. Yeah, but also he really enjoyed it, which I thought was a really yeah. interesting point. He had fun, <laughs> so it, maybe maybe it is a bit of a warhounds thing as well. You know that sort of individual prowess over strategic nuance I guess um, so that's another important thing that we learned during the journey from armature to 
Luceria. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else major. There's some really cool, cool Valkyrie. Oh, God. Erebus turns up. Oh, yeah. Erebus appears. That's important. Uh, I do agree with you in the sense that that whole plot line is a little bit loose. It's basically there to give Erebus agency to have something over Argyltal. But essentially he gets there, doesn't he, as they're having that conversation about the Night of the Wolf. Their little war council of captains and... Well, it's just the two main captains, Argyltal and Khan, and the Primarchs. And Erebus just walks in, as if he's like got right to be there. Yeah, and the, the way he behaves and talks to Lorgar is how he used to talk to him in the first Heretic and prior. But then, by this point, Erebus has like fallen foul favour uh, with Horus a little bit. He's not quite in his good books now that he's done his job. And Lorgar can see it as well. You know, they're kind of like, what do you want, you snivelling little rat? Like, <laughs> I don't... Yeah, and he's like, yeah, he's like um, yeah, it's like, you know, you, we had a victory at Kalf. He's like, is it, was it a victory? I don't see your ship. You lost a lot of men. They're still fighting. Like, you, you've basically walked your way out of it, but there's still lots of, of world bear, uh, word bearers dying on Kalf. And he's like, oh, it's a victory, I guess. Yeah, and I like <laughs> how Erebus... Yeah, he's trying to convince them that what they did was successful because they managed to do that whole warp, sun-exploding warp storm. Mm-hmm. And like, Lorgar's like, I don't think... I, would, I wouldn't class that as a victory. But Yeah, and I like how um, Erebus tries to do what he did with Horus in front of Loken and um, uh, Torgaddon, that they could see the way Erebus was clear as day. He's like, maybe, sir, we should uh, talk about this in private. And Lorgar's like, <laughs> no... No, whatever you can say to me, you can say to this entire room right now. Like he's he's got no time for him anymore. He sees right through his like sneakiness. Um, but you know he knows that he's there for a reason. He knows that Erebus is a puppet master, and so does Argyltal. He knows that. He knows that he thinks in three D chess, so he's really dangerous. And Lorgar warns Argyltal as he leaves, like Erebus is here to offer you something. Like refuse it. It's a trap. And he does. He comes and meets him later on in this journey and says, like, uh, I can bring Sereni back. And for those of you who might have forgotten or don't know, Sereni was like a blind priest from the their world that got destroyed by the Ultramarines as punishment. Um, 50 years prior to the heresy, it's um, it's as they fall, really. It's what causes them to fall, is they're, they're being told by the Emperor their faith is a lie um, and they need to get on with conquering. Um Sereni was a teenager, I think, at the time. She goes blind from the atomic explosion over the planet. Yeah. Burns her eyeballs out. But she survived, and they see that as a sign, don't they? Though? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, she's a cool character. You know, she's, she's a confessioner. So, like, again, Catholicism. They, um, they, they, they come to her and tell her all of their fears and their secrets. That's why Argotar valued her so much, as he could be honest with her about everything, which is what spacemen shouldn't be doing. So that's another thing about world word bearers is they're supremely human. Like they they're so tapped into that side of their life, which most space marines sort of can yeah they're very emotional. Of. Guess, yeah, 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 and um, but yeah, Erebus offers to bring her back from the dead. She died at the hand of Custody. Um, yeah, which Argotel has both the spear and the sword that killed her. Yeah, he carries so them around spear as punishment. The spear from the one of the from the first part, from one of them that he killed in that cave on on their planet where they find out about. That's he, like Precadia, that planet. Yeah, 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 that one. And then he takes he takes the sword from the custody um, like leader who killed who killed her, and he says 
he like he doesn't give the secret about way how he because they're all genetically linked to their owners, but mm-hmm. he somehow managed to break that blood. But it, <laughs> it just says blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's blood. Yeah, it's some kind of sacrifice. Unlock those weapons. But he's so good at fighting, he can use them both at the same time while in demon form, which you know he must be a tornado of danger. Like <laughs> they need to get a model out of him asap. I need it. Huge wings, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I need it. Uh, he's he's like Demon Prince level essentially. Like he must be massive. Um, but yeah, so, so it is a kind of a side plot story, but it's important to the story of Erebus, I guess. Erebus brings her back. Uh, that story's great. Um, the way it happens, Khan uh, Ar- Ar- in uh, invites Khan to join him to go find her bones. Her remains have been stolen yeah. from her tomb, and Eska Eska says to Khan like. Don't go to that ship. It's I, I can sense danger. Essentially, You're, it's a huge risk. It's Erebus. We know not to trust Erebus. Why would you go? And uh, he goes anyway. And it's just a really funny scene where Khan's Argental says, "Right, her bones are in this room. I'll go deal with it. Can you just make sure if anyone leaves, you don't let them survive?" And it's just like it's, you could almost see it being done in a comedic effect if it was a film. Khan just standing outside this room with his arms crossed, just listening to Argental kill like fifty. Faith, faith worshippers, just to re- retrieve a bag of bones. Yeah. But it's really funny. You can Khan can just hear this like slopping, slapping, murdering sound and roaring. But no, I don't think any of them are fighting him. I think they're just cattle that he's just killing yeah, them because they dare to steal her bones. Um, and then yeah, Erebus brings her back, and that's pretty insane scene actually, where, where it goes pitch black, and Khan can't work out if it's the lights have gone out or if it really is like witch power. And he can't see anything, and there's like whispers, like betrayer and you know, demon voices from the future, maybe. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like yeah, telling about him who he is. His future and hinting about what what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then he wakes uh, up. Round calls like the demon in Argotel calls him the betrayer as well, doesn't he? he yeah. Goes, ah, the betrayer, the betrayer. Like, yeah. Yeah. So like, he he doesn't know why why they call him that, but <laughs> it will happen eventually. Yeah. Um, yeah so so. Sereni comes back and it's not a nice time for her because they have to get out of the ship and just they're so, they they have all of the um, word bearer ships are very different to the rest of the traitor legions. They are ram packed with cultists, like fervent cultists yeah, of the yeah. chaos gods, and they get wind that she's back and obviously she's like the proto dark saint essentially. You know they're there on that ship because of her bones and she's back. And they all rush the the level that she's on. Like this word spreads. Even some word bearers are there in the crowds, desperate to see her again. And Khan and Argyltal basically have to back to back protect her because otherwise she'll just get ripped apart by them. They literally yeah, will tear her grab, apart. Trying to grab bits of her and as like tokens, so they just have to like punch, step and on. It it does start. Apart. It does start with Khan fairly contained, right? He's like, stand back, fuck off, and then he just goes my turn and just switches on <laughs> and just goes full on berserker mode well, but like, I think yeah, someone like start pinging lasbolt off him and stuff so he's like oh well fuck this <laughs> yeah and he, he gets so covered in gore that he drops his weapons because they just slide out of his hands so he yeah. just resorts to using his fists and, and, and it's just a pure massacre it's him and Argotar just eradicating an entire corridor of humans but it's so many even they know they could die in this situation like they cannot do this forever, and they're going to lose Sereni again. And then some of the Vakroyal turn up, who are 
burners, yeah. Yeah, flame specialists, and they use this like demon chemical that's green and it shoots jade fire, and it essentially burns half like whole corridor of ship to ash, uh, but it saves the day, and that, that, that's very very rad. I really enjoyed that scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was another bit about Val Caridar, which I thought was really funny on um, on the back on the Conqueror in this journey, where Lotara and Lork are investigating. We mentioned it earlier, investigating Angron's behaviour. And they go to Valcaradar because they know he was around when Angron was found. And he has that whole scene where he says, like, unsanctioned in the, in the audiobook. <laughs> where they keep asking questions. But they also find out that he's been building a new weapon for Angron, which is pretty cool. Yes. Like a black sword. And every time he make, works on it, you only see it once, but it talks about how every time he's been working on it since he was asked to by Khan, he opens up the void windows yeah, stares into and it, just yeah. stares into the warp while making this black sword I mean, I mean I find the mechanic and characters interesting enough anyway because they have loads and loads of layers and weirdness about them but that's an extra layer of dark to me which I really appreciated in it this like yeah. robot dude slaving over this demon sword well it's just a sword for now but it obviously becomes one just staring into the warp while working on it it's really creepy yeah like, and he's got like weird like spider legs backpack thing which he like walks around on like walks up a titan on it and then like yeah. he, and when he talks he, like lowers himself back onto his sort of normal legs and things There's, yeah he's a pretty cool character and he, like he also um, is fixing is it gore Childs the, the axe yes like, he's, yeah, Khan's can't. like I need to find the teeth you need to like whoever how many people dig the teeth out of the ground when um, Anglon was buried so like their whole excavation group I don't think they find all of them no no Tara knows where he gets the rest from she she makes a joke. She just it, it's when they're in the elevator. Uh, she goes to find him, and he she says, "Oh, I hear Khan's commissioned you for a new axe." And he's like, "Did he find all the teeth?" And uh, Valcaridor's like, "No, but he supplied me." And she just laughs, knowing that there was a micro dragon in the Hall of Conquering. And oh, she's yes, like, "I yeah, guarantee, oh, yes, if I go yes. there now, it'll be smashed. <laughs> yeah. That that skull will be gone because he's just taken it." So that, um, that's how Khan gets his uh, ch- famous chain axe, really. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Angron's smaller of the two. Um, <clears throat> there is another really, really good Valcarada scene. I know we haven't talked too much about Legio Ordax, but there is a minor, it's almost like a D story, let alone a C story, just through the Legio Ordax um, uh, Sigala crew, who were one of the titans on Armatura that gets downed, and it's a really well-respected warhound, and it gets saved. By Valcarada, he's one of the crew members that brings it back. But their princep died in that fight. Um, and it's quite soft, sore for the characters because they'd been with him for a long time. And um, there's a new princep on the on the ship. Yeah, he was he was actually the head of the like the um, the household. So he was like the princeps ultima, yeah. I think. So they were on the primary the Zagala is like the prime warhound. Yeah. It was like the command warhound, but neither of them had. One of them was a gunner, and one of them was a walker. They'd never had their own, and so they go to Valcarada to ask how Sagala's recovery is going. Like, is is she going to be ready for the next battle? And he's like, "Yes, but not for you." And yeah. they think they've been demoted, and they're furious. They think that you know because he died, their princeps, and they were the crew that they've been kicked off. And they go and square up to the new princeps who. You forget that even though they're traitors, he seems like a totally normal man. It's not like he's an even yeah, yeah. chaos dude. He's just this like plump, slightly jolly man. 
He's like, oh, he gets very ruffled when they square up to him. Like, who do you think you are? You're some admin that just happens to have got the job. It turns out actually he was the prime um, recruiter, essentially. His job was to monitor all of the well-being and effectiveness of each of the crew on all of the Warhounds. And he was the one that was always moving people around and getting them on the right Titans. He was the one that got them on the that Warhound with their Princeps. He recommended the pilot and the gunner. And he's a bit taken aback, like, stop having a go at me. I haven't demoted you. I'll take it you haven't read the letter. And they'd been offered promotions for their own Warhounds. <laughs> and they just completely shot themselves in the foot having a go at him for no reason. He's like, yeah, Jake, so he's like, uh, so you, you want to go back to your old post then? They're like, uh... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we've misunderstood it. But the reason they go up today is because of our character, because he's like, uh, he says like, but not for you. Or something along those lines, like, oh, but yeah, it won't be ready for you. And they're like, yeah, you what? <laughs> yeah, and they're like, he's like, you what? Uh, and then he goes, uh, I have a message incoming. I must leave. And then walks yeah, like, away. Up the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really, really funny. It's just like, ah, oh, fuck. And they, they say to him, you're not very good at lying. And he's like, it is not one of my skills. Yeah, very good. Um, but yeah, there's. I'm trying to think much more that happens in that journey um, before Lyceria. Luceria, sorry. I don't think there's that much. Um, we've had the Khan story with Delpharis, that's done. Uh, I think that's it. I think, yeah, then they get to Syria, right? And Lucyria is the home world of Angron. Um, it's where he was land, was where he landed when he was a baby, raised as a gladiator. And he's got, he's never wanted to go there. He's always avoided it. It brings him a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. Um, and... We find out that the reason Angron is being taken there by um, Lorgar is because Lorgar's building this symphony up over time, and he needs a he needs a crescendo point, like a capstone, something to really trigger yeah. it. He needs an emotional resonance within the warp that actually means something that will make it pop and essentially create a veil around Ultramar, like the Ruin Storm that will just shroud Ultramar from any knowledge while the rest of the war carries on, that's the primary goal but with a little bit of a twist he's promised Angron to save his life and to do so they have to go to Lyceria um, yeah like he knows that the nails are killing him so like he's like we have to I want, he's like, he gives him this whole speech about you know, you're like, my brother, why wouldn't I yeah I understand you, I'm the only one who understands you like yeah, I'm trying to save your life and I need to, we need to do that, we need to go here so yeah it's Yes, this is why it comes into slightly the betrayer of the title. For yeah. Me anyway. Yeah. So they land in Lyceria and Angron. Um, uh, yeah, it's very well done actually. You see it from the perspective of the Imperium planet that lived there, and you find out that they've never been visited by the Imperium again. So it's been pacified. It's been um, made part of the Imperium. It's in Ultramar still. I think it's worth remembering that. Um, Angron is found on the very edge of Ultramar. Yeah, it is, which was surprising to me. I didn't realise that. Yeah, really surprising. And um, some people reckon that's why the Warhounds um, changed colour as well, because they were blue. So I don't think they had anything to do with Ultramarines. I just think it was a, a physical nod to remove them as much as possible from yeah, the vision yeah. of Ultramar. Um, but that's just internet rumours. Um, yeah, they've never really been visited again. They've sort of been left to it. And they've had a they had a major civil war in that time, which got repacified by the people that lived there. But the most interesting thing is, is you know they refer to them as oh the Imperials they back again, 
Like, you know, they're almost a myth. And Angron is a myth to these people. He's not yeah, real. Yeah, they just... It's He's like a myth. Greek He's, mythology, yeah. Because it's only been two lifetimes, you know, people talk about... Uh, I think one woman mentions, like, in her grandfather's time. Because you forget space marines are around for easily 100 years. That's, like, a standard lifespan for a space marine, at minimum. That's, like, three generations of our families. Like, so it's her grandpa's time. This woman is the most senior captain of, of Lyceria's defence force or whatever... And they brick it because this whole fucking army just lands on their planet out of nowhere. And they just walk into the throne room. And you know how we said it, you said earlier it's front-loaded as a book? This is the reverse. This whole final couple of chapters is very quick. Um, yes, yeah, definitely. And, like, yeah, and, like, just go on, when, they, when Angram finally, like, turns up, and they're like, oh, they, it must be the Imperium. They'd come back to, you know, communicate with us and talk with us and stuff. So they also, the, the, the king's like a, boy isn't it he's like on on the throne like a boy every time i've read this since game of thrones i've thought of the boy in the airy you know um you've watched game of thrones right i don't know yeah yeah you know i need some milk he's like him like he's this weird weedy little um watered down gene pool of a creep do you know what i mean like totally weak and not ready for the role of royalty or leadership um, but yeah, that, she rushes in the room, doesn't she? Like, they're fucking here, sir. Like, there's a guy coming in, he's massive. And Angron just walks in and people literally piss themselves. And <laughs> don't know what to do. Like, it's, um, they call it, um, in one of the other books, like, um, oh, post-human terror or something like that. Like, there's a term that the Loken uses, like, when he talks about how why the Space Marines were created. It's like transhuman terror. Like the the bulk and the size just causes fear in humans. Like immediately, it makes everyone want to run. Um, but fair play to the captain. She like stands there and does her duty of talking to him. And Angron gets very angry very quick when he's told that they didn't believe he was real, and they and if he was, they were told he ran away. And yeah, his big problem is that he. The reason he hates the emperor so much is right at the final moment in his life where he as as a person as a gladiator when he caused this huge rebellion and everyone was dying and they were going to fight the high kill all the high riders as they called him like the sort of you know the, the royalty that enslaved them all he then gets whipped away by the emperor and all of his friends die and he calls them brothers and sisters and when they first land on the planet they land on that hill and they're just surrounded by skulls and bones of the people that died and it like breaks his heart completely and he's just full of rage and he's already an absolute mess of a person anyway and then he's told, yeah, you ran away, didn't you? And he just loses it and just demands the massacre of the entire city straight away. Um, doesn't he ask Argyll Tile to do it, not Khan? Um, I can't remember, I think so. But uh, yeah, the whole bit where he asks the first, like that woman he talked about, you know, he asks and he, she, like, so he literally just kills her and he goes, right, next one, <laughs> like, will you do this? And Yeah. yeah will you answer me? Will you tell me if I'm real or not? Um if the stories are true or not so yeah yeah it's so dark it's really sad like you said earlier like, Angron is a tragic character like it's all all of this all the reasons for him having like emotional issues in his life and he's being told that the people on the planet don't even remember him like that's pretty dark pretty horrible um yeah uh, but yeah he turns out to Argotar and says you know massacre everyone but guess who turns up Bobby G 
Yeah. <laughs> because a lot of this, like the Angron story, is basically based on Spartacus. So, but yeah. imagine in the end of Spartacus when he doesn't die with his men, like being crucified, and they all, you know, they all all one together, and they all say they're Spartacus, so they have to kill them all. Imagine that Spartacus was then plucked away, yeah. <laughs> and then everyone else was cooked. Yeah, it is basically Spartacus. You're right. I never thought of that. Um, yeah, as this is happening, Lotara gets like beacon alerts, like for warp entry, and a fucking massive ultramarine fleet has arrived. And my favorite thing about that ultramarine fleet arriving is the World Eater and Wordbearer one is a f- there's three ships, I think it or four. I think it's two of the, the I think it's a Trisagian, the Blessed Lady, the Lex, and the Conqueror, and that's it. And Gilliman has like got together this fleet of. Every, I think Lotar even says like it looks like a Reboot Gilliman fleet. He's just hand-picked as much as he could get hold of to create a fairly functioning fleet. But it outnumbers them like five to one, if not more. So they know they're probably going to lose this fight. And um, uh, Angron is actually the one to take the message. They're, f- they're circling the final city. So they must have been there a while. They're circling the final city, ready to take it. Um, and she gets the beacon, she gets the warning, and she's told stop them by all means necessary and we're going to take this city right now and that's what they do they take the city um and i think do they lose the lex up in space yes so um yeah it gets completely battered basically and so eventually at some point you then you can see it from latara's perspective as well and they're like it's doomed and it just um finally gets taken down and like um they're like, oh shit, it's going to land in the sea and cause a huge tidal wave and like possibly even wipe out wipe out the, the world eaters and world bearers as they're fighting. So she has to like radio down, like, can't, like, shit, get your people away from like the east or west part of the city. Yeah. You yeah. want to be swimming. Yeah, and I, I mentioned this earlier. So um, there's a couple of things that happen. So Lotara, one, spots that there's loads of bulk haulers like they're there just delivering troops those ships she's like we've got to target those stop them from delivering troops and then she spots a bunch of titan landers and she's like you're you guys are fucked they're landing everything they have on that planet right now and the, her job is just a don't die and b i think he actually i think uh angon even says like even at the cost of the ship you've got to stop everything from landing on this planet um yeah and they, she does her best, but they do end up landing an Imperator Titan, like the biggest of the big. And that's what brings the Sagala and the, the other Leader Ordax back into it. They go and capture it, which is pretty cool. Um, but I was saying earlier about the Ultramarines, sort of, you get to see them get a little bit of a comeuppance, is they land with such fucking fiery vengeance that they do deck the shit out of both the World Eaters and the Word Bearers at first. You know, they, they land like a fire tide. Like they just yeah. land and they, it's watching this slow, methodical word bearers, this sort of frenzied world eaters, not be able to handle pure strategy, like just unit after unit landing and overlapping and taking buildings and gun, you know, kill boxes. They're just pushing them all the way back through the city really rapidly, while trying to get away from a tidal wave, of like <laughs> epic proportions. While Reboot Gilliman is fighting both Lorgar and Angron at the same time. And yeah, he's so he, winning. <laughs> and yeah, so he's actually he winning. He fights Lorgar, doesn't he? Yeah. And there's a really nice bit where Lorgar's like, um, he sees, he looks into the eyes of Gulliman and, he, and he's like, oh, 
like he didn't hate me but up until this point like the whole um you know when he had to um destroy that whole plant, uh, that whole city because of the emperor told him told Gilliman to and like he thought like Gilliman um did that out of hatred or spite or something but he's like oh shit I, I didn't he didn't he didn't hate me at all he's but uh, now he does like what yeah. i've done to him now this is like pure hatred and like to have such an emotion in um Gilliman as well it was quite dramatic he's like he, he kind of had a hint of maybe Lorgo kind of regrets slightly what he did maybe yeah i think there's a sense of that um but also a sense of well too far now like i've got to do what i've got to do um but Gilliman's just fuming he's so angry like you know, whore sons and I'm going to cut out your heart with my fist <laughs> and you know he's, just, he's, there for, he's, he's the avenging son that's always been his job it's exactly what he did before the emperor arrived you know he's there to fuck shit up and he does they do they really batter them um, for the time being anyway um, so this is where sort of the crescendo happens where the ultramarines actually start retreating because it starts raining blood so yeah that's always a, it's always a bad sign. Yeah, it just makes me want to listen to Slayer so much. But um, <laughs> the main reason Lorgar's there is to save Angron. And by save is a loose term. He's not really saving him. He's ascending him to demonhood. And this, yes, is, how, yeah. this is how Angron becomes a demon prince is by sacrifice. Um, and it's pretty brutal. Like, it's pretty savage. He, um, yeah, he, he basically just... Doesn't he like essentially set on fire at first, and he's like, yeah, his, like his, body, his, his skin is slothing off of him, and yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a the librarians try and I can't remember now. The librarians try and save him, like they're trying to be like, like try and get to him via this communion as yeah, well. Yeah, they so they use the communion to try and stop Lorgar in the warp. They pull Lorgar oh, yeah. into the warp, and then Lorgar starts killing them all, just crushing their hearts in the warp and popping them. And they drop him back out. And I think by the time he comes back out, Angron has turned and he starts killing... I think Esker's the last one left. Yes, yeah. And I think Angron just eats him. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's it. Yeah, he eats him, which is like... <laughs> I think... Just um, like the most epitome of like being a demon. It's like... Oh. Yeah, just... Bloop, yum. And then, if I remember correctly, the Ultramarines run. They, they realise there's nothing else they can do now. They're fucked. They've done all they can. They have caused significant losses. They've really hurt them. But they've got yeah, to go. Yeah. They've got to go. And they run, and that's it. They they jet. Um, and while all of this is happening, while Orgar, Lorgar, uh, sorry, Angron kills Lork, so Lork like, kind of sides with the Psychers, like, we can't let this happen. We've got to kill Lorgar and Angron. This is enough. Yeah, definitely. Lork lasts all of 10 seconds against Angron, if that. Just gets battered and ripped out of his shell straight away. It's like just slopped on the floor. Like God. Yeah, just like an embryo or something. It's horrible. Yeah, I found it horrible because he's this like really nobly built character who's in it for one book. We've never seen him before or after. Yeah. Really, really liked him. Like he's, he was the original captain of the chapter master before Primark, and he's just chucked on the floor like nothing. Um, uh, and while this is going on, the Imperial Titan is actually captured by like twenty warhounds. All firing their ass claws at it, which is yeah, really and then, cool. Yeah, and then boarded to spend loads of um, world eaters. Yeah, so they they stop it from getting out of its coffin, like its landing coffin. They're like, if it fires its weapons once, we've all lost. So before it can even lift its arm up, they stop it. So it's aiming at the ground, which means it can't fire because it will kill itself. 
Yeah. Um, it's a pretty cool city in here. Yeah, and they board it, don't they? Like you said, and just take it from the inside. Um, and that's where Khan and Argotala. are. So they've just been fighting this whole time through the city. They jump on the back of rhinos and join that conquering. And they do it. They get to the top and there's this really lovely scene where they're on the top of it and Khan's ready to carry on fighting. He's like, right, I want to chase some ultramarines down. And this landing ship comes round and he drops some like rope cables for him to grab onto and he wraps his wrist around and he's like, see you in a bit. And then flies off. And then Erebus appears out of nowhere. Yeah, so I think I was going to say at this point, um, you remember Argotel's fighting with Khan because he's been told um, Khan dies on a world of grey skies at sunrise. Yeah. And like, um, and he looks at the sky and it's grey and stuff. He's like, oh shit, this is where Khan's going to die. Like Erebus tells, tells him this, so he's like, I've got to protect Khan. So he follows him. And then I think at this point when the sky is it's dawn and the sky is red and stuff, and so he's like, oh, okay, I've, I've saved him. And then yeah, Erebus turns up and like he's not... Um, He's not covered in any damage or blood and stuff. He's like, and Argotel's like, ugh, like, typical right. Erebus. Just been watching the whole time. And uh, um, Round told Argotel in the in the first Heretic, you know, when they first when they first met, it's like, don't worry, I know how you die. We or we die. We die in the shadow of great wings. Yes. Yeah. And Which um, I think you know, Sanguinius or the Emperor. You know, yeah, he's always just yeah, assumed it will be fighting one of them. Um, I think he basically thinks that he's going to die on the walls of terror under like a giant, uh, yeah, underneath one of the Primarchs or, or the, yeah. yeah. So basically that's what he thinks is like his ultimate fate is, is at that point. Yeah, and then um, he hears Erebus behind him and they have a bit of a chat and he won't look at him. And then he hears Erebus whisper his name and before he can turn around, Realm like in his mind is like, kill him, kill him. And then before yeah. he can turn... He just feels cold rush through his body, and he's been shivved through the spine by the. Um, I can't remember the name of the knife now. It's the same knife that was used to wound Horus by Timber in the sec- mm. in the second book. They have a name those knives, and I can't remember. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, but yes, it's the one that, that yeah, it's the same. It's the exact mm. same knife Erebus has had it the whole time, and he kills um, Argotal. But as as Argotal is dying, so Realm's disconnected. Realm's gone. So Realm's just not there. Yeah, it's like he's calling for him, and he's like, he's no longer there. <laughs> yeah, and he's just fallen onto his back, and he's like, he can feel the blood gurgling in his lungs, and he knows he's dead. He's been paralysed, like severed through the spine. He's just bleeding out. And um, his helmet comes off as well, which is never like since he turned to Dean form, he's like fused to his armor, and his yeah. head comes off, and it's like his human face, yeah, which yeah. is not like seen being covered the in blood day. straight away. Yeah, and he um. If I remember correctly, Erebus is like standing over him, like sorrowfully, in his sort of fake sorrowful way, basically saying to him that he he was the risk to Khan survive, not surviving, and that his loyalty to Khan would stop him from following the Eightfold Path and becoming Khan's greatest champion. Yes, it says. So he says, um, it was always you. In every one of the 10,000 paths, your erratic, emotional foolishness leads us to lose the war. You had one last chance to turn away from this fate if you could just overcome the death of that worthless whore priestess. Mm-hmm. But no, you begged me to bring her back, and in doing so, proved you were worthless as she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty dark. So, mm-hmm. yeah, then Argotal is gone. And, I mean, to be fair, we should want him dead because bad guys are terrible, but he's one of the most likable bad guys. Which is a shame. Yes, and like others, and the whole wing thing because he turns and looks up and he's oh yeah, 
and he looks up in blood and he just it's the eagle on top of the um the titan a two-headed eagle like the aquila oh, yeah right behind just, erebus yeah, yeah, yeah. just been covered in like streaked with the brain of the blood i and think stuff. He, i think he even says that he's like i was supposed to die in the shadows of great wings and erebus sort of turns around and just points his hand at it like, yeah it's right there mate yeah, he's right behind you the whole time shows, yeah yeah, yeah pretty, so, so you do <laughs> yeah yeah so pretty fucking crap but good ending for argyle tile i think there's a Dan Abnett said it before um, when he gets asked at Black Library events about why he's killed certain characters in Gaunt's ghost books specifically, and I know which ones and I won't say for people that haven't read them um, so why do you do that? You know, I love that character he's like, that's why because it hurts more and it means something if you're killing off you know, red shirts like in Star Trek all the time yeah, yeah, it doesn't yeah. mean anything if you've killed off a Spock it means something because it's Spock you know, so Killing off Argyle Tile, it just shows that you know there's there's risk involved and there's there's prices that have to be paid and you know, it sucks, but it makes him more likable as a character because he's paid for all of his wrongs essentially. You know he's he's gone. Um, yeah, it is a, it is a good ending, um, but there is a prologue um, which I think is quite interesting. So, oh, sorry, epilogue, not prologue, epilogue. Um, and there's t- there's two kind of important bits in it really. So, yeah, because the main story finishes very abruptly. Basically, um, you see Angron has just changed, and like actually, Lorgos says, um, "Blood for the Blood God." Interestingly, so yeah, like yeah. he says, like he says to um, like there's loads of world eaters. Like, what have you done? What have you done? He's like, you should be thanking me. Your whole legion should thank me for basically making your Primarch a demon. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, life. blood for the Blood God. So yeah, and he starts on their descent, and I, I will say is. Um, front cover for one of the siege books i think it was the first wall um which has got imperial fists fighting iron warriors and world eaters the world eaters are starting to have red armor so they some of them are like still white but they've got like red shoulder pads and red helmets mm. so i don't know if it's true that they paint their armor or if their armor became bloody like from demonic over time on the ships but I think they paint it to start with, just to maybe look more like Angron. I don't know, but yeah, you see it on that cover for the first time is like they're they're now looking red, which I thought was really cool. Um, but yeah, so there's two things that happen in the epilogue which are really important. So the first one is with Khan. So he's in the de- he's in the um, well, actually it's Erebus. Erebus is fighting in the Conqueror in the um, Gladiator pits. Yeah. And he's like doing all right. He's using, he uses a Crozius, doesn't he? And um, he's won a few. Yeah, and he's bat- like winning first blood. Like he's he's winning pretty much every battle. Yeah, and people like- forget he is a really really good warrior. Erebus. Yeah. Erebus. He's like you he wouldn't be first chaplain without being like fucking nails hard. But yeah, and then Khan steps in, and as soon as they say, as soon as it starts, he just does. He say extremist or does he say? Third yeah, he goes. Blood? He goes. Khan says he goes. Oh, first blood, and he goes. No, Sangus extremist. And then without even letting him breathe swings at him and it's, yeah. it's so good it shows how good Khan is when he's at at his peak of power it's like it all happens the whole thing happens within like five seconds for Erebus like you know it's, yeah, it's like about he, a page like, and a half and it's just yeah. Khan beating the fuck out of him yeah basically and then he, when he's got him on the floor like he picks him up again it's like fight again <laughs> yeah and what I like is he knocks him down straight away knocks him down again yeah knocks him down again and when Erebus puts his arm out to stand up he stumbles and his arm's been cut off at the wrist like he's lost an arm already and he didn't even notice yeah. it was that fast he hasn't even felt it yet 
and it's like, like um, fuck. Carl Goss is looking, he's like, going to need an augmenting for that. Yeah, <laughs> and then as he goes to fight again, now unarmed, and he realises what's happening, Khan's going to kill him. Um, Khan knocks him, gets Gorchild, goes to cut his head off, and then as the swing goes down, he cuts through thin air, and there's nothing there. And it cuts to Erebus, back on Des- uh, Hand of Destiny, sorry, Destiny's Hand, his ship, wherever that might be, he's obviously said some spell. And he's just got a slight graze on his neck where the Gore Child had just tapped yeah. him. So he's just grazed him. So he nearly killed Erebus. I knew he took his head off, and I wish he did. Yeah, um, God, yeah. Well, yeah, I read, actually, I read one of the books that features after this. I think it's Fear to Tread, the Blood Angels one. Is that really after it? Yeah, well, yeah, because. Oh, he mentions it, doesn't he? And also That's because something happens completely. to Erebus at the end of that book from Horus. Yeah, I completely did that. Completely timelined me. I, I, and because they they also mention that um, a lot of Logars and Argotel saying, "Oh no, Erebus says, oh I've got plans as well with like I, making it." I totally forgot about that. You're right. Yeah, because he says yeah. I'm, I'm, um, he's going to fall to us. Like I've got plans in the right. Singer's like, Prime. You're and, wrong. And Logars yeah, like, yeah. don't be, don't bother. Like he's not going to fall. Like he. You're never going to convert Sanguinius. Yeah, like, he's like, oh, but me and Horus have seen it. We reckon, we know we can turn him. And he's like, you're both wrong. Yeah. You're fools. You're fools for trying. Like, it's just a waste of time. Um, yeah, I completely forgot about that. You're right. That's really spun my head because that's, yeah. It shows that Fear to Tread happens much later than the release of the book happened. Yeah, yeah. Because it's quite and an it's, early book. You, but... Yeah, and it shows the fall of Erebus even more and more. So he's falling out of favour and longer in this book and then in the end of that book. As people read, he falls out of the favour of Horace as well. Like yeah, 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 absolute snake. Yeah. Oh, so he must have had a bionic arm in that book. Yeah. Um, so the final thing that happens in the epilogue, which, as far as I can remember, is the final thing that happens, is Lotara complaining to Khan <laughs> about what the fuck is that thing in my lower decks of my ship? Oh, yeah. And like, all I can hear is roaring, the walls are bleeding, um, half the walls have turned to skin. The, yeah, that's horrible. Yeah, all, that's horrible. The, all the water on the ship just turns to blood within minutes of being filtrated. Like, what is going on? And yeah, it's it's Angron's being teleported by Lorgar into essentially the floor of a of, uh, you know whole floor of the ship. Um, and he summons Khan, which is very similar to how Khan was first met Angron. So when Angron was first teleported onto the Conqueror. He killed the first like fifteen captains that went in to meet him, and it was only through Khan that he calmed down. Khan, you know, nearly died. Yeah. Um, but Khan got through to him, so it's quite a nice mirror scene of that of him being the first one to enter the chamber and see his now demon prince dad. And Khan's like, he's all chained up, I think, with like magic chains. No, actually, I don't think he is. I think uh, I was just looking at it now. I think actually he goes down and. Um... He's, he just says uh, he sees something unseen, and um, but he's not like angry or anything. He's like he, he says, "Calm," like um, I'm, and he goes, uh, "Yes, Lord," and he goes, "I'm no one's lord. I never was, even so less now." And like Khan's like, "Really, like what's going to happen?" And he's like, "I want something from you, Khan," and he's like, "Name it." And he's like, "Take your axe, take your brothers, kill three hundred souls in the thralls' decks, three hundred of them. Take their skulls, take their skulls, Khan. Build me a throne." <laughs> It's just an absolute riff going to kick in after that. So metal. Uh, yeah, so pretty gnarly. Pretty gnarly end to the book. Um, 
brings on neatly actually to the next uh, Saturnine, the next Horus Heresy book coming out. Um, on the front cover is Angron smashing into loads of the Imperial line. Yeah, and he I looks that's crazy. Quite cool pitch, yeah, he looks really cool. But yeah, I think I think we've covered it, dudes. I can't think of much else that we've missed. I loved this book. It's I've read it quite a few times, and it really is a pleasure. Genuinely, it's such a good book. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I can see why everyone does love it. I think yeah, that one first and first heretic as well go very well together. Yeah, yeah, they are. They're spirit. They are sequels essentially, aren't they? Like we said, and fear. Uh, no, no fear. Sort of mm. is the direct sequel. But yeah, yeah, really, really good book. Um, I've I've seen Khan again since, which was interesting. Very different character now. Um, in the preceding five years, I'm guessing between Betrayer and the Siege book that he appears in, um, he's very much more Khan as we know him in the 40k universe, which is interesting. Um, yeah, love it. Really love it. Um. So, I guess we're nearing the end. Um, any final thoughts? What what did this book do to the the universe? What did it change, do you think, for you, anyway? Um, it, I think it just puts the lights of the World Eaters... Um, it puts them in a very different light. I think if you're used to just playing 40k, you know World Eaters are just berserkers, you know, blood for the blood god, just rampaging, and, this, and especially... Especially with certain characters like Karma and Angron, I think it adds a lot more, lot more character into their background, and actually, very, you get very sympathetic to them, which is quite unusual. Especially Angron, I think that's quite his his story is is pretty sad. In, in, at the end of the day, um, also Lorga, I think it adds. Up to this point, I always thought Lorga was just a very weak Primark character, but in this book, I think actually is he comes out as quite. Um, I don't want to say strong, but he's his his. Um, his will of character and his his will of what he wants to do is is a lot different mm. than the other books. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. He's um he's not likable in any way, but he's um he's not who he was in the first heretic. He's he's found right. his calling. Yeah, in an arrogant way as well, though, right? Like he's definitely yeah, um, yeah, definitely, yeah. He he sees himself as above certain people now, which is not. He needs to be a little bit more humble than that. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so what was it for me? I think for me, I completely agree. It just, um, I really, really hate one dimensional uh, thoughts on a legion. You know, like, oh, they're the berserker ones, they're the wolf ones, they're the ones that like fire. You know, it. there has to be more con- contextualization than that. And that's what this does. You know, it's all about brotherhood and loyalty, really. And that's why the title Betrayer is so juxtapositioning and works so well. Because mm, yeah, you know, everything you see about the world eaters in there, when they talk, and we talked about earlier with Cargos uh, uh, bollocking Delvaris, you know, brotherhood is all that matters. You know, if you fuck this up, you fuck everything up. You know, you're out. Um, and I, I think that that adds so much more to them than just oh, they're dudes with nails hammered into their brain. <laughs> like it's just yeah, it's more interesting. It adds more layers. Um, yeah, I try to think if there's anything else that changes. I think yeah. Makes me feel for Angron. I think it. Um, I really like uh, how it adds a bit more context to humans outside of the loyalist side. You know, seeing Lotara and the Sagala crew, they're kind of just people that have a job. You know, <laughs> and they just happen to be on the opposite side. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a, there's yeah, a... not, they don't. Yeah, it's kind of like they're not the ones making decisions. 
it's all just get going with the flow and they've got to deal with it because how much more can they do really you know yeah. uh, I, I like the, the, the little bit that's uh, it added a lot of context for me about just what it must be like to be a human Lotara like talks about how you know she's got fairly standard quarters and then talks about on her nights off or when, if she's not on duty on the deck you know she'll play cards and drink with the guys and I'm normally better than she goes I can't really bet anymore because I don't get paid <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, ter- yeah terror yeah, paid that's, me that's quite a good bit isn't it yeah, that, yeah actually don't forget about that that the premium's yeah. not paying them now and obviously Horace is not going to pay them so yeah she's like oh <laughs> you know I guess I'll think of that and deal with that at a later point in life but it's like all those little things I never really thought of it's it really yeah, made me chuckle but yeah it's um yeah definitely definitely a firm favourite for me um Cool. So, final moments. Um, what are we doing next, Jamie? I guess we should do a nice hobby episode next for our listeners. It's been a while. Yeah, I think we've uh, we've bashed out a lot more stuff in during this lockdown. So, it's probably got a lot more talk about what we painted, and obviously, there's lots and lots of news in the Warhammer world. There's yeah. lots of shit going down, which yeah. Yeah. if you haven't heard of. Um, you've probably been, and you're listening to this podcast, and you probably, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, where have you been? Um, yeah. And what are we thinking of doing next, Jamie? We are going to mix up a little bit, so we're going to move away from Horus Heresy and actually even move away from Space Marines. So we're going to do uh, Gaunt's Ghosts, the yeah. first book of Gaunt's Ghosts, which is, I can't remember what the first one's called now. The I first... can't remember either. The Founding? Is it the founder? First and only. First, first and only. That's it. Because I've, I've had one of the first ever Black Library books I bought was the Omnibus Trilogy. So it came in like a, the first three. Um, so I always forget the name, names of them because to me it's just one very long book. Yeah. But actually it's three books buried in it. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait to get stuck, stuck back into that world of Dan Abnett because it's all connected to other books. Like it's all it all lives within the Sabbat Crusade period of time. Yes. So there's loads that dovetails off of it. Like he's done like Inquisitor books, and I think Brotherhood of the Snake is in the same war. And he's done like um, I think James might be listening to it now. One of the pilot, uh, uh, uh nautical books. Doom, yeah. Doom yeah, something yeah. maybe. That's Sabbat Wars. It's yeah. I'm really excited to get back stuck back in. Um, it's basically sharp in space, and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, it's actually Abnett's first published novel. Really? Really? Yeah. Wow, wow. I thought it might have been, um, for some reason, I thought that it was uh, Eisenhorn. No, this is, yes, no, Gaunt was his first, first published novel. Wow, can't wait. Yeah, I cannot wait. It's, it's a real pleasure. All three of them are great. I haven't read any more than that, though. I don't know, there's like 20. <laughs> so I really <laughs> yeah. should expand my horizons and stop reading Horace Heresy books. And on that, actually, Dave, what should I read next in the Horace Heresy on my personal level? So I've done, we've done this. I've got, is I this... guess, there's Age of Darkness, which is a anthology, I think. I'm never a fan of the anthologies. They're a bit, um, they're not always the best. Sorry, if you can hear me, I'm just um, looking at my shelf. There's Outcast Dead, The Primarchs, or Shadows of Treachery. Oh... Or maybe Angel Exterminatus. Angel Exterminatus is amazing. It's the spiritual sequel to Fulgrim. Um, and it follows Fulgrim's story with Perturabo, and it is very, very good. And there's also a really good story in it from the point of view of some of the people running the Shadow Crusade. 
behind enemy lines. You know the the three legions that got fucked at Istvan three uh, five, Salamanders, oh, yeah. Iron, ha- Iron Hands, and Raven Guard. Um, it, there's a ship. Uh, they, they've got loads of books, but this one's their first sort of main story. They're like the B plot through it. They're really cool. You'll meet a really really good um, Raven Guard character in that that James absolutely loves. Uh, so I'd recommend that definitely. Um, okay. I'd pick that out of all of them. Um, but Outcast Dead's really good as well. Um, but it's a bit of an odd one. You know, Dan Abnett talked about the, the, the it used to be a tapestry of books, and then they sort of went a little bit more down the route of. Uh, we need to do them in kind of timeline order. Outcast Dead is one of those tapestry books. It sort of just oh, okay. it just yeah. takes place randomly in the middle. There's no like connecting tissue anywhere. It's really good. It's all set on terror, which is cool. But it kind of just you could never read it, and it wouldn't matter too much. Yeah. No. Well. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I do that, and then. Go back to Outcast Dead or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, don't, I mean, I'm a big believer in read them all, but um, yeah, on a personal <laughs> level, uh, Angels of Exterminatus is up there is a very good one. And I like okay. Graham McNeil's cool. Yeah, yeah. I probably will read Shadows of Treachery as well because that's called, actually got Prince of Crows in by Aaron Dembski Bowden. So. Yeah, that's good. I like that one a lot. But yeah, okay, cool. Cool, all that's right. My own personal person reading yeah and listeners challenge us maybe I'm wrong tell them to read something else <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually reading Spears of the Emperor as well at the minute I love that it's good yeah it's pretty cool it's they're pretty badass actually yeah it's very different isn't it it's um I, it wasn't what I was expecting when I started reading it it really caught me out how it's written yeah it's like Space Marines gone native a little bit yeah well. yeah like I love this whole idea of um, ultramarines that don't remotely feel like ultramarines yeah. Okay. Well, I guess uh, that's enough. Uh, nearly hit, just over the two hour mark, so that's just about right. Um, cool. Thank you for listening, um, Jamie. Where can oh. people find us? Oh yeah, I was going to say. Well, actually, on another note, sorry, it doesn't make it a bit longer. But first of all, thank you to everyone who bought shirts in the first in the first go. I actually mm. realised we haven't recorded since we sold those shirts. Mm. So yeah, thank you everyone who bought one. They look great. A lot of people posting them up. You all look very yeah, sexy. Very cool. Which is nice. And um, thank you to everyone who's ordering on the second and final run. So we had a lot of requests after we closed it that actually people missed out and they wanted more. So um, yeah, we've we've we're on run. We've meet, met the printer's minimum at the minute. So so we can just I'm going to close it this Friday. So the Friday the what date's that? So whenever you listen to this, um, the tenth, the tenth yeah. of July, I'll tenth be closing it. Cool. So, so anyone yeah. wants to get another order of those Sweet Night Lord T-shirts in, that's your last chance. So yeah. Yeah, I, I was blown away. I I know you do a lot more of the shipping, uh, you know, the, the sales and shipping stuff than I do, but it really did blow my mind a little bit that we thought we'd done enough with the first run and just the volume that came through for the second one. Pretty crazy. Yeah. So from that first run, we managed to give. Um, donate a hundred pounds to the NHS, um, and they distribute that mainly for the COVID situation, which is brilliant. And we also raised a hundred pounds from the Stephen Lawrence Foundation as well. So. Yeah, which is a superb charity. Um, personal favourite purely because of uh, the educational side of it. You know, pushing for legislation around educating people in back history, which I think is really important. Um, we're big readers, and you know you. you you learn a lot doing that and I don't think our education system is doing enough to support 
real history in our country. So yeah, it means a lot, and it really, really does mean a lot to me. It's amazing that we get to use, do something we love, talk about shit we love, but actually put it into things we care about as well. Um, and it means a lot to me, and I know it does to you too, Jamie. So yeah. So I, if, if anyone is not British, listen to this. Uh, Stephen Lawrence was a a black uh, British teenager that was murdered for a racially motivated attack. So a lot was go. This was back in the nineties. Um, yeah, yeah, we were children when it happened. Yeah, and um, it's one of my first memories of actually any racial, racial motivated attack. So it's um, obviously very appropriate for what's going on in the world at the minute. So yeah, it was very good to raise money for that. And then also for the second run of t-shirts, we'll also be donating to another charity. So I guess we'll pick something maybe something slightly different as well for the final run yeah no it's again just from the bottom of my heart genuinely it's um it's quite moving to see people being totally cool with that and yeah with everything that's going on uh, i'm not surprised that all our listeners agree with us wholeheartedly you know (laughs) everyone's a good bunch um and if they're not they won't be missed and so far i don't think anyone's said anything no no i think it's you're a good crowd Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that this hobby draws in the right people. And uh, from what I've seen on, online, all our listeners are, are, are of the same mind, so that's great. Yeah, yeah thank you all. Yeah, I guess uh, that's a nice touching note to leave on. So I think um, it's it's getting late in real terms, times of recording. I know you've got hobby to paint, Jamie. This is your prime hobby time. Yeah, I know. I literally step to like two o'clock because it's the only time I get on my own. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm just tired and like sleep. So... With that in mind, good night. Cheers. Cheers, bye.